everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. A new week, a new life, a new grasp on reality. Did you hear that deep voice? Welcome to the program. Why are you looking at me that way, James? I'm all motivated. Yeah, I love the energy on a Monday. I'm all pumped up. Nothing gives me more energy than starting the show on a Monday morning. Is it early? Does it seem earlier? I think I'm getting used to it. I'm here. I'm here. I'm pumped. Not even tired. By the way, about 11, well, four hours from now, I'll be sleeping like a baby on my desk. (laughs) Actually, under my desk. It's when the crash happens. It's when the crash happens. The adrenaline rush is yeah, over. Just, it's all gone. Sh- gone bye-bye. So I just curl up who, with my backpack. Who better that staff meeting quick than after the show? <laughs> I know. We've got, I've got a lot of meetings today. Who would think you'd need this many meetings to have one radio show? Everyone has an opinion. They do. Today's going to be fun. We're going to hear a lot of them today. In a good way, of course. Do I have a lot of meetings? Um... Like, I, I know I have, you have one. one. You have one. And then the rest yeah. of them, I just kind of... Then the, the other ones are just me talking about you. Oh, good. Great. <laughs> so it's a really good... Positive thoughts. Positive thoughts. Hey, uh, great weekend. Uh, got to just kind of veg. Went to lots of basketball games with my kids, for my kids. They were playing. I did my taxes. You did? I did. How'd it come out? In my favor. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we... it depends. Because yeah. if you're getting money back, it meant you gave too much money you in the first place. But I see it as a bonus if I'm not paying. Really? Right. If I don't have to write a check and send it in, yeah. I think that's a good thing for me. Yeah. I'd rather it be a check coming back than me having to send money in. But that's just a personal opinion. That's, a, that's true. No, that's very true. Because if you're on the other side, if you're sending money in, then you were able to keep that money yeah. for the whole year and pick up whatever interest you can and then you send in the money so i don't know it depends on your point of view i would rather not write the check well i mean that's a great way to look at it i mean who wants to write i always end up writing a check oh yeah because we're really we don't send in enough at first and then we figure it out and then we're like what (laughs) are you kidding me and we don't you know you gotta make money to pay a lot yes you know. And, you know. No. I, I'm, I'm gathering a lot of people don't make a lot to the point where you have to just send in a massive check every year. Yeah. Like most people through their yeah. their paycheck, they're able to balance that out. Plus, you know what helps a ton? Kids. I have six kids. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, you get the child The tax credit. Credits. Yep. That's a good moment in, yeah. the, in the tax preparation process where you put that in. You're like, all right. Yeah. See, that helps a lot. Having a business helps a lot. Uh, The lemonade stands don't help. No. Don't help at all. Can't write those off. No. uh, It's just cash coming through. You know, you got to always claim everything. So speaking of things that happened over the weekend. Yeah. 
Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. Is it going to be funded? Yeah. That was a mess. That came up right to the end. Did you notice that? They messed that up. Yes. And the Democrats voted against it, basically in opposition of the Republicans. But then the, op- the Republicans couldn't pull enough votes. Right. So then the Democrats were almost left holding the bag. Oh, that was a trickaroo. But then they voted and extended the budget for a week. So we yeah. can do it all again on Friday. Yeah. <sighs> Who signs a one-week bill? That's like it's like when you're working for somebody and they're like, you know what? Can I just pay for a week and let's just see how this goes? Yeah. We'll just extend you for a week <laughs> and we'll talk. That is crazy. So that's how the government runs. Mm. Uh, was it Rand Paul won the CPAC straw poll again? Yeah. What, do you know yeah. what CPAC stands for? Uh, it's like conservative, conservative Woodstock, but party and group conservative groupies. political action conference. There you go. It's action. Yeah, we're gonna get something done. This is where the conservatives act. So let's. So see. he won. So he 20, he got twenty five percent of the vote. He, so he is now deemed as one of the great kind of re, the conservative branch of the conservative party's Front poster runner. boy. Yes. Yeah. Scott Walker, governor of Wisconsin, came in with twenty one percent. Yeah. And uh, who else came in? Ted Cruz. And uh, Ben Carson clocked in at eleven point five percent. Clocked in. Ben Carson. I'd love to have him on the show. He's a smart dude. And Jeb Bush came in fifth with eight percent. He's he's not liked by the really conservative. Well, yeah. Come on. Yeah. So kind of interesting. Yeah, he's an old schooler. That's something that runs on C-SPAN. If you know where that is. Mm -hmm. Good times. Uh, uh, President uh, Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu. Oh yeah, this, this is, is going to be some political theater. This to, and this tomorrow. This is tomorrow. He's tomorrow on Tuesday, he will speak to a uh, joint session of confer- uh, Pri- Congress. A, a prime minister coming to speak in our Congress to our Congress. Yes, without really advising the President of the United States. No one told the White House. They heard from a press conference with Speaker John Boehner, mm-hmm. where he said, "Oh yeah, by the way." Big deal. This is a big deal. The world leader's coming, and we and can tell them. Barack Obama and Bibi, yes. Bibi and Barack, Bibi. not good friends right now. They not, have some opposing views on Iran. Not liking each other. Yeah. So. It's hard. It's kind of like when you have to throw that house party, and you have the two people that used, you know, they were both trying to date the same woman, and then one of them won. Right. And now they're both coming it's to the party. just sort of awkward. Yeah. President Obama will not be at this speech. Okay. 34 Democrats are saying they're going to boycott. Yeah. 34? 34. That's the number I saw over the weekend. Well, it, it may have changed. Hundreds. Well, out of hundreds, but you know. 500. So. 30, 34 are just going to not yeah. be there because of uh, the way this worked out. Um, John Kerry on some of the uh, political shows said that uh, they, he is welcome to speak to Congress, but cautioned the Obama administration did not, did not want the address turned into some sort of great political football. See, this is a big deal. Yeah, that's the problem is Bibi's running for parliament again. Yes, this is his – this is running for prime minister again. Him being tough. Yeah. So he's trying to get reelected. Mm-hmm. And so now I can go to another country, stand in front of their government, and look presidential. Wow. See? This is why I don't like politics. It's just – you know what it is? It's too political. Politics yeah. is too political for you? Uh-huh. It bugs me. <laughs> I, Way I, too political. I like it because there's a lot of chaos. Yeah. Well. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just people are doing things to spite other people. And I guess if you're not going to have cooperation, at least make it interesting. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. Give me Here, some chaos. Here's the deal. I, I got to get to this before we're done. Speaking yes. of chaos and politics, um, I've got – I've got this son. 
who is the he's just the cutest kid you've ever seen. And he plays piano and he's his name's Tanner. And we I've promised all of my kids because I have a radio show that I every once in a while I would do a favor for him. So I'm my son called in the favor. And he's got this incredible friend named Amanda who's supposed to be listening right now as we speak. Amanda, I hope you're there. And <laughs> Amanda, she's just the greatest girl on earth. She is smart. She's talented. She's going to go serve the world and, and take it over and go help a lot of people in other communities, in other countries that need help. She's going to go volunteer when she's done with high school. So here's the deal. The biggest dance of my son's life is coming up in June. It's his last prom, junior prom. And he was thinking, look, I want to go with somebody that I want to go with. I don't want to go with somebody I don't want to go with. And so he's got this friend, Amanda, who is so incredible that everyone, they always ask her really early. They ask her like years before the dance. Two years ago, she was asked to a dance this year. So Tanner jumps, he's jumping the gun. He's asking a little early because he wants to go with the coolest girl in high school. He wants to go with the girl he calls his best friend. He's one of his best friends, I shouldn't say his best friend. But she's a close friend. And so here's the deal. Amanda, I'm not going to give you your name just in case, you know, there's creeps out there. And we're going to be talking about that in the next section of the show. So here's the deal. Amanda. Will you go to junior prom with Tanner Townsend? It's in April. We know. It's early. You don't have to answer on the radio. We understand. That's a lot of pressure. But if you want, I don't know, get a pizza, write yes on the back, cut it up into small pieces, and then throw the pile of pizza pieces on my front doorstep and answer. That's how you answer in high school now. (laughs) Anyway, Amanda, be his honor. We've got the right music. It'll be a great night, fun, friends. I was going to say romance, but probably not. Just fun. Anyway, Amanda, we're hoping you're listening. We know you like early morning radio. You got a great family. Please go to the dance with Tanner. Junior prom. That's it. My job is done. I feel good. I hope she says yes. Will we know? Yeah, I'll fill you in. Okay, good. Okay, uh, that's it. Uh, you feel better? I feel a lot better. Okay. There was some stress there. I had there. to get that out. I had to get it out. There was some dad stress I was worried. There. I'm worried. I didn't want to offend her. She's incredible. She's the real deal. Now, here's a transition. We are going to take a break. When we come back, Tim Ballard is going to be joining us. Now, Tim Ballard is seriously... Um, he's the real deal, folks. Homeland Security officer who has been fighting... Trafficking, people trafficking, stealing, enslaving, sex trade. He's coming on. He has been taking it on basically single-handedly. He's now built an operation underground, it's called. They're taking it on, folks. He's going to be joining us and talking to us about the trafficking world, the human trafficking world. Great guy great uh, leader in our community and in our world. Tim Ballard will be up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, on the show, we like to always hit hard in our first hour uh, a strong news topic. And today I think we've got one that we, we want to make sure you're, you're paying attention to, that, we, that you know it's a real deal, folks. And uh, really, I've got a hero on the phone that, um, you know, that sometimes there's just this, it seems like a convergence where the right person meets the right issue at the right time, right? And it all converges into this moment. And I think we've got that with our next guest. You know, in 2008, you remember, you may remember, Liam Neeson was in a movie uh, that was called Taken. And it opened up the society's eyes to a world of human trafficking. It's a subject that many have turned a blind eye to, not wanting to delve into this dark world. However, human trafficking is real and is the sex and the sex trade is rising in numbers worldwide. The days of slavery are not behind us. And, uh, you know, what would what would it be? You know, the U.S., we have to be on the front lines of this type of thing. We're the ones with the technology. We're the ones with maybe the resources to make this happen. And so joining us today on the phone is uh, Tim Ballard, who's the founder and CEO of an organization called Operation Underground Railroad, and it is trying to end child slavery. He's a former CIA operative. He's a special agent for Homeland Security, where he was deployed as an undercover operative for the U.S. Child Sex Tourism Jump Team. He graduated from Brigham Young University. He also has a master's degree from the International uh, from the Monterey Institute of International Studies. He resides in California with his wife and children. Again, Tim Ballard, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. How are you, Tim? I'm doing just great. Thank you're, you. You're doing great and love everything uh, you're doing. I heard from one of our great contributors, Meg Conley, went on one of these trips with you, and you changed <laughs> her right. life. That's right. Yeah, having Meg with us. Um, she was down in Dominican. Yeah. In public. We did an operation uh, last year, and, um, you know, we the, the media is a big deal. I mean, part of the solving this problem is getting people's eyes on it. Uh, they, people don't want to see it. It's dark. Uh, like you said, but but if people don't see it, then then people won't make a change, and and it's it's the people that drive change in the world. So so Meg didn't you know having her embedded with us to to see up close and personal how this works and, and how real it is. And, and and so talk about this because so this is human trafficking. This is children being basically abducted and then sold into slave trade, sex trade. Um, but this isn't just this isn't a little deal, is it? This is worldwide. This is happening in large numbers, in huge numbers, and, and astonishing numbers. There's, there's an estimated 27 million slaves today. That's men, women, oh. and children who are owned by other people, uh, forced into slave labor, forced into sex trafficking. Uh, they, they they estimate that about 10 million are of those are, are are in the commercial sex trade, and two million of those are children. Forced into sex slavery, so it, it, it's enormous. This this problem, um, it's lucrative. It's the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world right mm. now. Who's, so and, so and, who's and behind it? Here. I mean, is it just the average guy on the street in some other country? Are these people being brought to the U.S.? Are they all over? Where, where are they being taken? They're they're all over the place. Um, in the United States, uh, of of those huge numbers, it's it's less here. Uh, 
simply because we have uh, a higher-end uh, law enforcement response. But there's, there's estimated 100,000 children in the commercial sex trade in the United States, with, uh. with uh, thousands being smuggled into the United States every year. So it's growing. But, but where America really um, ha- has a stake in the game, if, if you will, is, is that we, we are the ones who are traveling to engage in this. Uh, it's a lot of Westerners who travel to develop, developing nations uh, to engage in, in sex with children. Uh, and and that's what you know. My, my team, we go and we work in the U.S., but we also work a lot overseas, and we play the role of these Americans. And when you go undercover, pretending to be one of these horrific, you know, sex travelers, you can see how real the problem is. When I land on a beach with a group with a small group of Americans, and we're approached by by, by vendors who are trying to sell us kids without us even asking. They just, oh. oh, it's like drugs. It was like kids that got ten years old, or you know, or older, or younger. I mean. If you go to the right place, you see how how prevalent this is. This this market is real. So so if people, let's just keep. I want to keep getting your website out so that so that as we go through this, everybody can know exactly where to go. If, if they just look up Operation Underground Railroad, they'll get to your website. Is it ourrescue dot org? That's right. It's O U R Rescue Two R's ourrescue dot org. Okay. So it really and. It gives you information. I mean, there there is there's places there to to donate as well, but you you basically take teams in, and you um you basically you have a sting, and you go in and you capture a bunch, and you work with the local officers, but then you you actually will go in and have arrests and and put ten however many people away. That's right. You know, and, and our our tactics always change and vary, but we we always go to the front door. We always work directly with our our, our foreign or our domestic uh, our government partners, and, and we do the thing that they aren't able to do. For example, going into say Colombia, where we where we were recently, uh, and and we could pose as the American travelers, and they are in on this thing with us too. The Colombians are. And we know what to say. We know how to say it. We have the technology to to document all the evidence, hidden cameras, and and we nail these guys. That is honestly, you know what is so crazy cool about it is you're not waiting for the world to change. You you just built the team and built the organization, and you're you're doing it on your own. What's what drove you to get into this, Tim? You know, I uh, I didn't want to. I totally get it when people say, like, I don't want to see this, I don't want to go there, because that, that was me, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't enter government work, um, this kind of work, to, to, to work child crimes. I wanted to, I wanted to chase terrorists and narco-traffickers. That's what I wanted to do. And when I was asked to help form a child crimes unit, I initially said that I couldn't do that. I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to go there. Um, but after giving it some thought, I, I decided with my, with my family, with my wife, that this is something I, I couldn't say no to. Uh, because these are children, and and so I entered this world, and I'm, I'm telling you, it was devastating. It's still, it's still devastating. I, I, I remember the first case, one of the very first cases I worked. We came across a child who we had already seen in a video who was being abused, sexually abused, and trafficked by this American man. This child was from Mexico, five years old, and and I came across the, the child in the video. We were able to rescue this child. Um, on the border of U.S. and, and Mexico, and, and this this kid jumps into my arms and and just starts holding on to me and just shaking, and I just melt. I mm. just I, I I just fall apart. I'm I'm, I'm bawling on the scene, yeah. you know, and and I thought I don't can I possibly continue this this line of work? And and I really thought about quitting. 
Um, but then it, somehow that moment changed me in, in, in the other direction. And instead of dissuading me, it actually encouraged me. And I thought, you know what, there's two million more of this little boy out there. And, and I can't stop. And so that was kind of a, a turning point for me. And I decided I would never stop. I would always do everything I could uh, to, to continue this fight. And, mm. and uh, so, yeah, you really so, can't yeah. ever stop, can you, Tim? I mean, it's 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 one of those things that, you know, you've opened up Pandora's box and now you're the but you're changing. That's what's so powerful. I assume at the end of every one of these missions, you know, you've changed, you know, the lives of at least. 10 kids or 20 kids or more. That's right. Yeah. You know, like you said, once you see it and, and I saw it, and again, it wasn't because I wanted to, it wasn't Mm-mm. because I ran into it heroically with my sword unsheathed. I mean, I went kicking and screaming, screaming <laughs> but once I, but once I saw it and, and anyone would have this reaction, once you see it, you can't, you, you, you have to keep fighting because you know what it is. And I'm trying to get other people to see it too. Yeah. Um, so well, one of the things of our mission. as part of that, and we'll talk more about this when we come back, is you, you guys are actually putting together, uh, I guess, a movie, a TV series called The Abolitionists, because this is really slavery has, is not dead. And you just are, you're taking video teams and camera teams on all of these missions with you, and it's all being filmed. And is that going to be aired somewhere? Yes. So, yeah, we, we were approached early on by Jerry Mullen. He's the Oscar uh, winner of yeah. Schindler's List, yeah. producer of Jurassic Park. And so we don't pay for this. It's actually an independent group that came in with their own money, and, and they said, we would like to follow you guys around. And they got me before I even left the government. So they were able to document the whole thing. And I said, you know, great, follow us around so cool. um, with the most transparent charity on earth. You know, yeah. we can't, everything we do is recorded. That's right. And, and these guys followed us around this whole last year. Uh, we did close to 10 different sting operations that they were able to record. And the movie's done. The The Abolitionist is, is finished. The, the, right now, they're entering into some deals with some Hollywood distributors. And it looks it looks like it's going to be a TV show that will air prominently, hopefully prominently, uh, this year, probably by, by, by fall. Oh, we'll how cool. The, and then, the, that, the yeah, series. more people can see it. Then we can raise more money and save more kids. That's, that's the plan. That's the plan. Let's take a break. We're talking with Tim Ballard, again, former CIA operative, special agent for Homeland Security, and is now uh, leading Operation Underground Railroad, trying to save children from slavery who are being kidnapped and traded into the sex slave as sex slaves. Uh, go to the website, ourrescue.org, ourrescue.org. We'll take a break. Uh, come back more with Tim right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, everybody out there has a mission. Everybody has a purpose. And if every one of us just took our mission, our purpose, as serious as our guest Tim Ballard does, man, we'd be a different world. We'd be a different country. I mean, and the funny thing about your gifts, your abilities, they're not always, like he, like Tim was saying earlier, it's not always what you thought you'd be doing with your life. It's not always what you wanted to even do. But if you're the right person at the right place, sometimes you just have to step up and uh, fulfill the role 
Tim is fulfilling the role as, uh, I guess, basically the founder of Operation Underground. He's a former CIA operative, a special agent for Homeland Security, where he was deployed as an undercover operative for the U.S. sex chi- or the child sex tourism jump team. And uh, he's got a master's degree in international politics. He uh, also resides in California with his wife and children. Tim Ballard, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. You know, um, I really uh, the the idea that this is turning into a movie, I think, is so important because we need to be educated. Like, I had no idea that men, that U.S. men, were driving this as much as they are. So, U.S. people, I mean, U.S. somebody needs to be uh, on the buying end or the using end of this of of these children and the trafficking and you're saying the US as as people when we're out traveling out and about we're out there creating a lot of these problems absolutely um you know uh, it's 2 million children you think about that number and you think about the demand that justifies that number yeah. there's that's a lot of people oh, yeah. getting into this black market and um Child pornography is what is what drives this, and and regular adult pornography is what leads to the, to the sex addiction, which leads to that. And child pornography is by far the the, the country that's the, the highest consumer of of child pornography is the United States of America, mm. and and so that's where the sex addicts. Now I'm not pigeonholing you know the, the, all the you know the Americans. It's it's, yeah. it's a lot of it's all over. It's everywhere. Yeah. But in terms of these travelers, they are Westerners. It's you know, Americans, Canadians, Western Europeans who we see overseas engaging in this. And and they choose the countries, of course, where the kids are, are, are being held captive and where there's minimal law enforcement response. And so it's real easy for them. And, and we're trying to just ruffle that up and, and, and stop that. When you do an operation and it's all done, you, you kind of pull the kids away and you're arresting and taking away these these men. Um, what what do you think? What are you thinking? What are you saying to these guys, especially when they're Westerners and you know they're, they can understand you? I mean, how do you keep your cool? Well, we actually get – so as part of the sting operation, we my, my guys get arrested with them. Okay. Your, your guys look like they're part of the group. Yeah, we, we go in as part of the group. Well, not always. I mean, but generally that's how our sting operations work. Uh, we end up getting arrested with, with them. Yeah. And so we do we do talk we do talk to them, uh, but bad guy to bad guy, and it's a way to get intel, way to get information out of them. Interesting. And and these guys are unbelievable. I mean, the traffickers as well. I mean, the way they're so desensitized, they're beyond they're past feeling. They're they're like soulless to me, uh, because they they sit there and talk about a ten year old child, uh, and they're, and they're selling this child to you like they're selling you some piece of equipment or a, uh. a, a computer or something. And it's, I, I can't even repeat how these conversations go on air, but but it is so disgusting, and we and we just sit there and, and have to smile at them and just act like we like this, and this is a great deal we're we're making. All the while, I'm thinking of my you know my ten year old daughter, and you can't help it, and but think of the, the children you know back back at home, and and you just it's, it's unfathomable. And then they bring these kids out, they bring them out out of the boat, out of the vans, bring them into your into the party scene. And it's just it's overwhelming. Do I mean that's I mean psychologically you must it's gonna it's aging you. It's got to be ta- actually you look quite young, and <laughs> but it's got to be taking a toll just emotionally. But then I guess too there's the there's the benefit of knowing you just you know saved a lot of lives. It's yeah it's bittersweet. I mean the the, the bitter parts never never go away. I, I I tell people every third day I just. 
cry. Do you? <laughs> and that's, I think I do. And, and I used to not admit that, but I've just come out and admit it now. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just, it, it's, it's heavy. It's heavy. I, I'll be sitting in, in church or in a movie and I'll see a child. I'll see something that reminds me of something we just done. And I'll just, I'll just lose it. And just the floodgates open kind of, uh. um, and, and, and then, but then we just pick up and, and carry on, you know, it's, it's, um, the, the the sweet parts make you you know keep you keep you moving too yeah. when you when you see that smile on that child who knows for the first time that they're that they're free that they're not having to go back with these traffickers how, how many and, how many operations do you do a year well this our first year we're only one year old and our, our first year we, we we were able to do uh, about ten operations which which was uh, to me unbelievable because that's way more than I was ever ever able to do in the government really because of all the jurisdictional restraints and bureaucracy and so forth we we were able to rescue um, we were able to rescue close to 350 mm. victims this last year again way exceeding anything I, I, I'd ever seen in my whole 12 years in, in the government and that's the ones we saw and pulled out uh, there's no putting a number on how many you actually rescued when you take down a whole ring when you create the deterrent effect that never was there, there's kids who won't be trafficked that never knew they were going to be trafficked. Right, right. And, and so, and so, it was it was a good year for us, and we we hope this year we're, we're planning on doubling, um, doubling those operations, doubling in numbers in terms of rescue and in, in, in terms of arrest and everything else. Again, we're talking with Tim Ballard, uh, who is what, what what would your official title? Just the founder of Operation Underground. Yes. And uh, if you go to the website, Our Rescue, O-U-R-R-E-S-C-U-E dot org, you can learn more about what they're doing to to stop um, and rescue kids that have been kidnapped for child slavery, sex slaves. And um, I, I think, man, 350 kids. And, and you know, I guess, as an agent with Homeland Security, you weren't – you were kind of hindered just because of – rules, you know, operational rules as a government, that are you now more free as an independent to go do more and to impact more then? Yes, and, and that's why I, I, I left. I, just being told no so often. And, and I don't blame the, the government. Most of the time I was being told no because the cases I'd find, the kids that we'd find that we wanted to rescue fell outside the purview of the United States government. There, there was no U.S. nexus. There was no U.S. statute being violated. It was in another country. Huh, right. And so I was told no, and that just that just happened too many times. And I thought, you know what? We have the tools. We I have the team. If I can if I can just pull it together, leave the government, we can just plug into any jurisdiction. And, and in the U.S. as well, we work closely with my former colleagues in the United States government, and they're very helpful to us. In fact, when we are overseas, uh, even though they they wouldn't necessarily be able to open or run a case that is not a U.S. case. When I'm overseas, the U.S. Embassy and my, my colleagues, my former colleagues there, will jump in and help. And oh, that's great. And be part of it. So the, it, it, is a, it is a great effort, and we're able to just kind of be a force multiplier in this, in this fight. What's the um, – what – I mean, now that you divide it, you could, I guess, assume I, you just keep growing these teams. You just keep doing more and more and more. There's, and there's probably right. no end to this. There's no end. There's no end. And in our first year, we could just do one operation at a time, and I had to be on every single one of them. This year, it's different. We we're doing two, three, four at a, at one time. Uh, we're in fact, I had teams in um, in Asia and Latin America this last week, and and we were able to rescue over twenty victims. Oh. Um, it's really. I mean, this is just like in the last couple of days, so I can't give too many details yeah. other than, than than that. But 
but but it's it's so fun to to see that we can operate like this and and the more success we have the more invitations we're getting from around the world including the united states you're going to see us play very prominently this year in the united states as as um as u.s law enforcement agencies are, are, are reaching out and wanting to work together this is so great and then it seems like too i guess once you've done it you know wherever in the philippines or wherever do do the philippines uh police departments are they more interested in having you back again Oh, so you could just keep we, going. Right. Well, what our model is, and we did this in Colombia, This is we, we kind of really focused last year on Colombia. We did four separate operations there. And and what we did was we, we were helping them enforce their anti-trafficking laws for the first time. Hmm. I mean, they've had these laws on the books, but they just haven't been able to take the next step. And when we pulled out of Colombia, uh, they did five operations following our model, but on their own. Oh, we, wow. we consulted with them. And and so we felt like we really injected energy into the whole government, and, and, and they're continuing. I mean, they have four or five ops planned for this year that we're going to continue to help them on. But instead of really driving the car, we're kind of sitting in the back now and just kind of consulting because they've got it figured out now. So it's, it's really rewarding to watch a government – you know, take the bull by the horns, and 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 you know we had something to do with that, and then oh, we that go on to the next country. Yeah, and we just want to go to every country and, and infuse that, and you know, inject that same energy and, and get them turned on to the whole thing. Is the charity side of it growing? Is are, are you getting enough money and funding? Is I mean, can you also get other sources of funding? It seems like government would fund this because it's helping. We are, yeah, we are talking to government, um, to, to government funding sources, but sometimes it comes with strings that uh, that, uh, that don't let us move like we want to. So we're being careful there. So far, we haven't used government money. We're we're we're, we're functioning solely on the generosity of, of 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 Americans who support us here. And 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 yes, we're we're getting uh, great support that's allowing us to continue to fight. Uh, of course. There's many countries we'd like to be in right now, and the only reason we're not is because of still lack of funding. So yeah. the more money coming that comes in, the more kids we're going to save. Mm. Let's do this. Let's take another break. Uh, again, we're talking with Tim, Bow- uh, Tim Ballard from Operation Underground Railroad. Go to the website, www.ourourrescue.org, ourrescue.org, and uh, you can learn more information about donating and just understand what's going on. Um, there's some videos on there as well. We'll come back. I have a a lot of questions for Tim. I mean, think of this, folks. To think that pornography, it's just innocent. Well, not when it drives to sex addiction and not when it drives to more pornography addiction and then child pornography. It's not. And Westerners, we're a big part of this problem. More with Tim Ballard when we come back. Again, uh, somebody fighting the slave trade. Who would have thunk it was still alive and thriving more with Tim Ballard right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, really honored to have our guest today. Tim Ballard is on the phone with us. Um, Tim is fighting slavery. Who would think we'd need to fight slavery? But uh, we do. Millions of people worldwide are um, are still being you know kidnapped, taken, and thrown into slavery, sex trades, 
and uh, human trafficking. It's a real deal, folks. And Westerners, we play not only uh, a, a role like Tim's playing in solving some of these problems or a, a trying to help solve these problems, but we also play a major part in actually perpetuating these these roles as well. One really cool fact about Tim is uh, he's also an author and a smart, smart dude. And uh, I remember meeting him a long time ago, probably, I don't know, four or five years ago, but um, he's 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 written a book called the lincoln hypothesis and uh about basically about abraham lincoln and um you know his life uh, during a very dark time in the country so it's interesting just just the ironies tim tim by the way tim ballard welcome back oh thank you so good to be here matt by the way the ironies of writing a book on lincoln and yet fighting the sex or the slave trade you know i find a lot of um Healing, I think, yeah. in 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 reading about these guys who who had to face a you know real hard hard things and see a lot of difficult things and and uh, somehow I find solace in, in re- I never meant to write I just wanted to read and just get that comfort but I, I just you know reading studying turned to turned to writing and it's it's been therapeutic for me. Certainly. I bet. No, in fact, are you writing anymore? I mean, it seems like. You 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 know maybe that would be a great way to process some of this crud. Oh, I am. I am. In fact, just before I got on with you, I'm, I'm working on my next book called The Washington Hypothesis. There you go. Should be coming out with Deseret next next year. Sweet, so. Tim Ballard, <laughs> what a man! And uh, on the front lines, folks of Operation Underground Railroad, go to the website ourrescue.org. And an upcoming uh, TV series you need to be watching that'll be called The Abolitionists. And I, I know some people that have been on the crew as well. Um, and just the stories, man. I mean, you're changing. It's really powerful to see that one person um, with a with an idea and some insight and some skills can can take over and do what you're doing. Talk about some of the stories. You've seen so many. What are some of the stories that we need to know about that keep you going, Tim? You know, uh, something happened on the recent operation that we did a couple months ago. Um, it was the last time I was going to go undercover because my because I decided I needed to come out and be more of a of, of the face of the company, and so my undercover days were going to come to an end. And you know, one thing that always punched me in the stomach was. Uh, when we get arrested with the bad guys at the end of the sting operation, the, the kids who we just helped to rescue believe we're bad guys, and they kind of oh. scoff at us as we get carried off, you know, into, into the paddy wagon. And so often, I've, I mean, dozens of times, you know, I've had to go through this, and I just want to reach out and say, no, we, we were on your side the whole time. Yeah. Um, and this particular operation we did, um, it was actually the largest rescue operation in the history of maybe ever that we, we know of. There was 124 uh, victims rescued within mm-hmm. one hour in three cities in Colombia. It was, it was, I had guided my teams in three cities. I was in uh, Cartagena on a little island where, these, where 54 of these victims were, were being uh, sold to us in, in what was billed as a, as a sex party. Uh, and we negotiated with these traffickers. The sting went down. We all got arrested. And they took the they took the real bad guys first, and then as they were leading out the American quote unquote bad guys, uh, somebody on the rehab team because after the arrest goes down, the, the, immediately a rehab team enters in and starts helping the kids, and starts you know beginning their 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 healing. Yeah. Somebody accidentally told them that they weren't supposed to because for our security, but somebody told them, hey, you know those Americans were actually aren't they're they're actually working with us. And huh. something happened that had never happened in, in all my, my operations. Uh, the kids 
ran to the window uh, of this cabana as we walked past, and they were crying. But this time, when they entered, a lot of them were crying. Mm -hmm. They were scared, and they were asking for drugs, and it's just horrible. Uh, The kids were as young as 11 years old. Several of them were being sold as virgins. Uh, They go at a premium for $1,000 for a couple hours because they're virgins. And And those kids especially came running to the window with tears in their eyes, this time tears of happiness. And my team and me, we all just broke down. We broke our cover. We broke everything <laughs> and just started crying. You know, we had to put our hands up on the screen yeah. and then touch the, the kids' hands. And, and they just started singing and, and yelling. And someone grabbed it all on. It, it, it could be all, you'll see it all on a TV show because they documented all of this. It was an amazing moment because it was the first time or one of the first times, I should say, that I got to see myself, what, what, what liberation, what emancipation sure. looks like on, on someone's face. And that's what keeps us going, see, those, those moments. Well, maybe that there's the tender mercy, right? I mean, somehow you do this without having that positive feedback. If you could have that positive feedback at the end of every situation and every uh, operation, that would be one thing. But you actually had to go without it. Wow, that must have that's been right. special. And, and then, and what you said, a tender mercy is exactly what we've called it several times. Is that especially on my on my last undercover operation to have that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, and what's great too, the other mercy is having it videotaped. So, because yeah. just you telling the story, we're all wanting to cry. That's how powerful is that? I mean, I think the video side of this is going to to uh, to be a a big big difference because people have to see it. I think to believe it and to hear just. The vile, stupid things people are saying. I mean, the price of a virgin, a thousand dollars. Yeah, you know, it's exactly right. And and it's uh, we harken back to slavery in, in in America in the 19th century because it's the same thing that's going on, the same interplay with the public and the problem and and the awareness. Uh, how did we allow slavery for for hundreds of years to exist in this country with good people just letting it happen and not standing up? It's because they didn't want to look. They didn't look. It was a dark thing. They they would rather just not know yeah. what's really going on. It was Harry Beecher Stowe, who's my one of my great heroes, who who stumbled upon a slave plantation one day. And didn't didn't she didn't know what was going on until she really crossed the river into, into Kentucky and she and she sees this. And she comes home and she just she's changed and she says I've got to do something, mm. and she says I'll write something and, and she writes Uncle Tom's Cabin and millions of copies go into into print and that was the first thing that woke people up. It wasn't the government that got rid of slavery, it was the people who became converted through other people like Carrie Beecher Stowe, and and then the, the swell the the movement became so large that the government had to react yeah. and that's what began the end of slavery in in America at least the legalized portion of slavery. Because uh, it never really ever went away, um, but but that's what I, I see this video, this TV show being. I see these filmmakers like Harry Beecher Stowe that they're going to come in and open people's eyes and and hopefully and, and not just to support us. We're just one of the solutions, right? But but but, but create the, the the movement to to ignite something under under all governments and other organizations just to rise up and end this. Do, do you? This is your calling, isn't it, Tim? It is, yeah. Sometimes I wish it wasn't. I know, I bet. I mean, that's hard. It's a hard calling. Yeah. I mean, it's talk about your family. Like, how does your wife handle the idea that you have to hear what you have to hear? You know, she at at first, you know, we both decided this is, you know, more than 12 years ago when I first got asked to do this in the government, and we both said no. 
Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's my wife that if without her, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done this. Like I said, I didn't run into this operation underground railroad thing, uh, with my sword unsheathed. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. Right. I was scared to death. I felt more like Jonah <laughs> running you? away from, from a calling. <laughs> I really did. I, I spent most of 2013 in the fetal position, uh, most of December of that year. Cause that's when I was about to leave and I thought I can't do this. Uh. My wife who who said you have to do this you know i was scared to death not only trying to attack this problem as a private organization i had no experience as a private organization right. would it work i have six kids you know mm-hmm. I, I, I just gave up my secure job am, am i going to be able to put them through college i mean i had these thoughts going through my mind and my wife just stood up and said look we know that this is a calling that we have felt we need to do you know stand up buck up and get your <laughs> butt out there it was her really and that's really how it went that's cool and so and so she she's 100% supportive and and understands that this is just what we're supposed to do well i mean it's interesting too because this was such a different road than you were going to take even when we talked many years ago i'm thinking it's it, you were called you can almost just tell cuz you were going one direction with your life and then you just seemed to be called, and then all That's of a right. sudden you had to come back, and you couldn't say no. You were you were there. I mean, you tried Jonah in the well, but yeah, eventually you ended up in a well. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. I I, I never would have dreamed that this was what I was going to end up doing, or that I could even do this. Yeah, um, it was doors that were open. It was it was it was promptings and, and, you know, a call, like you said, and, and I had, we had to answer it. That's so powerful. We have about a minute. Tell us as an insider, what do we all need to know? What do we need to be real about in our culture, in the country, in the world? Just, you got a minute. What do we need to really focus on? You know, to, to, to your audience, those here, I, I'd say, look, you know, we, we got to open our eyes to pornography, what it is. Um, I've interrogated these guys, dozens of these guys, you know, and, and every single one of them, this was the problem. This was creating the demand for these children is sex, sex addiction. And if you study, and, and, and I know you understand all this and probably a lot of your, your, your viewer, your, your listeners do as well, but this is a drug. I mean, it, it creates, yeah. it, it creates something in the brain, uh, that it's a chemical reaction that the, that the person, that the addict wants. Regular porn ain't doing it for them anymore, so they they move on to child pornography and they get into things that are illegal. They end up going on a sex tour. I mean, this is what happens. It turns people into monsters. I mean, not everybody, yeah, but, but, but enough, but enough, to justify, sure, enough to justify two million children, yeah, in the sex trade, yeah. And, and so I would I would tell parents and families keep that crap out of your house, totally, and and, and be serious about that because it, it is a drug, and 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 then and then also. You know, be aware of, of, of where this all ends. It ends with children being kidnapped from their families and forced in, in, in to be to be raped for money. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where this ends. It ends in the most horrific, the most horrific thing that I, I think could happen to anybody you bet. on this earth. Tim, and you so, know what, Tim, by the way, I, we got to cut it. But I want to just say thanks to you, to Operation Underground Railroad. Everybody go to www.ourrescue.org. Find out more about Tim. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back after this break. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two of Fun Fest 2015, Education Fest 
What a killer uh, first hour we had. Holy cow. Tim Ballard on the front lines. Operation Underground Railroad. It's a big deal. Uh, again, go check out that website, ourrescue.org. To, uh, today we've got another incredible guest lined up. Hello. Ron Lieber will be joining us. He is a columnist and an author of the book, The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Wow. Looking for that. Need my kids to do that. I have a son that uh, needs a job. So I said, why don't you come work at my office? And he said, that'd be great. How much are you paying? And I'm like, well, you're 14. So let's go with minimum wage. And he's like, what's that? And I think it's seven eighty, seven dollars and eighty cents. He's like, ah, no, I won't work for anything under nine. Wow. I'm like, what do you mean you won't work for anything under nine? I won't work for anything under nine. My friends all make nine. I was going to ask James how much he makes. <laughs> then I thought that's not proper. No. So uh, we're, we're, I'm going to interview Ron in a few minutes, and then I'm going to play it back for family night with my kids. And everyone's going to learn the importance of working and having a clue about credit cards, about saving, about all of that. You know, it's not like you know our government doesn't have issues with this. Constantly. Constantly. All kinds of problems. <laughs> Talked about it in the first hour. Yeah. Pushing the Department of Homeland Security budget down the, the road for a week. They just kicked that. They've, week. Been, they've been doing that with the um, the credit limit type situations for oh, the last yeah. several years yeah. where they, they're worried about our, our standing in, uh-huh. the, in the world when it comes to our lending status. Yeah. We just kicked that down the road for a couple months. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff. Just throw it down the road. Right. We could even create legislation. Just we'll figure out the details later. It's not a big deal. It's probably not good for a uh, financial budgeting, but yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get all talk with that. your kids and help them understand the value of seven dollars, seven eighty, seven eighty. I didn't know the minimum wage was seven eighty. I may be wrong. It might be seven twenty five. It might be. It but also depends. I was on where good you live. giving him six. I mean, he's just going to vacuum. You can count room and board. I I do, and then he gets all mad. You should go. You should uh, give him like three dollars an hour and have him work for tips. <laughs> Tips. And like have my assistant tip him? Yeah, just occasionally give him a tip. You filed that well. Here's a, here's a dollar. Here's Good a job. <laughs> Way to file that. Did wow. You, did you see all the protests in Moscow over the weekend? No. Thousands of people. They're getting mad? Out in the road, marching, protesting. Protesting who? Russia? A, uh, let me see the guy's name here. An opposition leader <gasps> oh, that to he, the city oh, government. Oh, this is a big deal. Boris Nemtsov. So Nepstov? I'll go with that. Okay. That's really close. He was shot dead on Friday. Murdered. He is a vocal opposition leader against the Vladimir Putin-led government. He, yeah. Random, they say. He was a a random shooting out of nowhere. He's a former deputy minister. He was shot on a bridge near the Red Square. He has urged people to protest against Putin and the war in Ukraine. A a media interview several weeks ago, he was in a magazine. He he claimed that Putin wanted him dead. (sighs) Yeah. And, uh... Of course, President Putin has vowed to personally investigate this base and cynical murder. Who would do that? It's a, As people are marching through Moscow with, with signs uh, that say, why did you kill him, Vlad? It's a, I mean, think of this. This is, this is huge. This is yeah, he's being assassination challenged. of yeah. 
And people are opposition. Are, I, I heard an inter- interview with a, uh, a protester who said, you know, we're we were beginning to understand the reality that if you go against the government, you get arrested. Now it's taken a new step mm-hmm. that you're going to die. They feel because they they're just blaming. It's this. no proof, it's but something's moving. So there. that's happening. Something to keep an eye on. Uh, the uh, World Health Organization. Who? Exactly. Who? World Health. That's a good joke. Good Thank job. You. <laughs> they suggest that people should listen to one hour of music at the most each day in order to preserve your hearing. Really? The all. So it's not even the volume. It's just music. They are going to tick off a lot of teens. They claim that music players, concerts, and uh, different locations are serious threats and that 43 million people between the ages of 12 and 35 have hearing loss because of exposure think, yeah. to loud volumes. Yeah. That's, well, that's why we have earbuds. The portion you of you can just stick those speakers right into your ear holes. The proportion of U.S. teenagers affected by hearing loss has gone from 3.5% in 94 to 5.3% in 06 and wow. likely growing since then. I think that's crazy. Yeah. So there you go. You're listen- if you're listening to your music, make sure you keep it low. But only one hour and They're keep saying it one low. Hour. Yeah, well, but- they've got it. They can't. I, I, it seems like an earbud would be bad, you know. But I, all the kids are wearing them. Well, they come with a phone. I know. You get a phone, you get some earbuds. Get your earbuds. Waffle House. Mm. You like the Waffle House? Love the Waffle House. They want to get into the delivery business. That might be smart. They're announcing a partnership with a company called Roadie. It's a startup. <laughs> They aim to be the Uber of package delivery. So they so when you get a hankering for waffles and chicken in the middle of the night. Yes. Mm. They, they have an app. This roadie company has an app which launched last month. Let's travelers earn money by delivering packages to locations along their route. Okay. So, so if you're going on a trip, you can pick up a package from somebody, deliver it in whatever city you're going to, and Waffle House is the location you deliver it to, and that person comes to you. So it's kind of like a UPS store, but it's a Waffle House store. It's a Waffle House. So you can go in there. You could take your skateboard that you need to send to Minnesota from Salt Lake City. We don't have Waffle Houses here no. in, the, in Utah. Wait, so does Waffle House actually sell waffles? Yes. Yeah. In the South. And packages. And the, they, they're, they're not selling, no, not the selling packages. packages, but you can buy waffles and get your packages at yes. Waffle House. And they're even offering a... Uh, what, they're open 24 hours a day? Waffle oh, House yeah. will offer a free waffle and drink to drivers making deliveries at their eateries. Wow. It seems... So the idea is... That's a good deal. The person brings the package. Mm-hmm. You tell Aunt Ruth or whatever to stop by this Waffle House, pick up the package from, the, you know, and if through the app, you can find yeah. out who the person is. Well, let's and, just think this through. I mean, if you had to choose between UPS, getting your package there, right. you know, after years of transporting packages on time... Or, you know, maybe not being as accurate in your package delivery, but getting a free waffle, I'm going with it. Right. <laughs> I think the real – It's the, about the waffle. I think the one that's going to die because of this opportunity is going to be the U.S. Postal Service. They're going to take a bigger hit than UPS. You know? Unless, unless, unless they adapt and they start handing out Pop-Tarts with their oh. packages. Two Pop-Tarts. Yeah. It's like, here's your package and a Pop-Tart. It's not, it has a nice ring to it. If you, yeah. Package and a Pop. You can just go over there and just pop it in the toaster. They could have toasters on the counters mm-hmm. at all of the, Utah, or the USPS. Perfect. 
Now, the syrup on the boxes might be a little <laughs> little uncomfortable later when it's all sticky, but, you know, you could get by that. That You know, that's interesting. Yeah. I think people are getting creative. Trying to figure out ways. And who doesn't love a waffle? Right. Mm. Well, that's good. Good news, I guess. Uh, and so there's another way, folks, to move your packages across the country. Again, uh, if this is going to work, we're going to need some waffle ha- more waffle houses over in the west side of the United States. Good stuff. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a break. When we come back, Ron Lieber is going to join us. He's a New York Times columnist, and uh, he's written the book called The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. You know, it's one thing to actually have a child that understands finances, credit cards, so they don't go get into credit card debt, student loans. There's so many things where we're preying on our our teens, our, our youth. Now, what if, though, we actually could teach them the value system that would, they could govern their money by? That is what Ron's going to talk about. It's, uh, it's all in his new book, The Opposite of Spoiled. We'll be back with Ron Lieber right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do your kids understand how credit cards work, you know, that they're not just free money? Do they have a clue about the stock market, about balancing bank accounts or budgeting? When is it too early to start teaching your children about their money and finances? You know, we spend months teaching kids the rules of the road before we give them a driver's license. Wouldn't it make sense that we teach our kids the rules to their own financial future before we just set them free? with a credit card or just, you know, with their own bank account. Ron Lieber is a columnist for the New York Times, and he's recently written the book that walks us through how to teach children to be financially savvy. The book is entitled The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money, and was an instant New York Times bestseller. He joins us now via telephone in a taxi in New York City. Uh, Ron, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Sorry for the fuzz. That's but, good. Uh, you know, it's snowy and crazy here, and uh, this was the best I could do. No, don't even worry about it. To me, it adds more color and dimension and depth to the radio show. All right. Uh, glad to provide it. <laughs> so what got you involved in this idea? Here, a columnist, and then all of a sudden you're thinking, by the way, also a father, also a husband. Um, what got you thinking, I need to, I need to worry about this money thing? with my kids well it was really it was really my daughter who started asking these intense questions at the age of three uh about you know what we had and what other people had and why in our third floor apartment uh you know in in brooklyn uh did we not have a basement full of toys the way (laughs) uh you know her cousin in new jersey did and you know i play this money expert in the newspaper on the weekend but i i was tongue-tied i didn't know what to say and you know i instantly knew that um the answers were actually pretty high stakes, right? Because, you know, the money questions bring up all sorts of intense feelings, and the parenting questions bring up all sorts of intense feelings. And I wanted to get it right, and I didn't actually know what to do. I, You know what? I totally agree, and I've done it. I have uh, my last – my youngest child is 10, and I still don't know what to do, and I've studied it. But it's, it's almost like you need somebody, maybe like yourself, Ron, that has the financial savvy – 
and has the you know the desire to to teach your your child more than just the tech just like a saving technique you're you're trying to instill values principles as well well that's what i figured out relatively quickly cuz you know i started putting up some sample answers on a blog on the New York Times' website. And, you know, readers showed up, and they had some good suggestions. And, you know, we came up with some pretty decent scripts. But some parents started to notice what I was doing, and they asked me to come speak to their communities about this, communities where there were people with more and people with less. And, you know, those people didn't always get along, and and they were worried about whether the school was too materialistic in some uh, respects. And and I was trying to figure out, well, okay, what, what do all those people have in common? And I knew for sure that nobody wants to raise a spoiled child, and so I tried to solve for that, and I made this list of all the values and virtues and character traits that, to me, added up to the opposite of spoiled. You know, these things like modesty and patience and thrift and perseverance and grit and generosity and perspective. And I looked at that list, and I thought, whoa, you can use money, the thing that I write about every weekend in the newspaper, you can use money to teach all these things. And so rather than, you know, sort of shutting yourself down every time the kid asks because you don't want to introduce them to this, you know, scary, dirty thing called money, um, what if you actually did the inverse? What if you embrace those questions and and use them to have, you know, years-long conversations, uh, you know, with kids that, that lead to those values? If we did that instead, not only could we raise really terrific, you know, decent, grounded children, um, but they would also be financially literate, too, which is a huge bonus. Oh, huge. And I mean, it's it really is just a list then of principles we want to teach and conversations we can have, like how to talk about giving, how to talk about modesty, how to talk mm-hmm. about thrift. I mean, it's and yet teaching the principle as, as we go as well. What um, one of the areas I know you focus a lot on is materialism, the dangers of materialism. Talk a little bit more about that. That seems to be a, a, a core part of your book. Sure. So, you know, it's easier to identify it than it is to prevent it. I mean, the basic definition of materialism uh, in kids is when they start to value their possessions over their relationships, right? So if they're getting in a lot of fights, and not just your standard issue fights when they're two or three or four years old, but fights later about sharing, you know, sharing their games or sharing their phones, or, you know, they're so obsessed with their toys that they don't want to uh, actually leave them mm-hmm. um, and, and, and go spend time with, you know, other real human beings. Um, or if, you know, all they think about uh, or talk about is, you know, what they want to buy next or what they want to do next and don't care so much about um, who they're doing it with, uh, you know, then you've got a problem on your hands. And, you know, look, I mean, some kids are more naturally covetous uh, than others. And, it, you know, and that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting things or wanting to work for things. Um, but, you know, you want to watch out to make sure that it doesn't get too extreme. And so, you know, one way that families do this, and, um, you know, in particular families who are lucky enough to have way more than average, is they set up a sort of, you know, form of symbolic deprivation, right? Mm-hmm. They, um, they make a decision that, um, okay, you know, um, this is what's going to be enough in our family. This is how we will define enough Legos, enough American Girl dolls, 
enough clothing, uh, enough expensive clothing, uh, enough square footage in our home, even though maybe we can afford more. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to articulate, um, you know, to ourselves, if there are two parents in the house, and, and also to our kids when they're old enough to understand it, why this is enough in this in each and every category uh, so that they understand, um, you know, that, you know, we could spend more, uh, but uh, we're not going to because we want to tithe or we want to tithe extra or because we want to save as much as possible uh, so that you will be able to go uh, wherever you want uh, for university, you know, without any debt or wherever you want um, for graduate school without any debt. And that is how we make our priorities. Well, that, I love that. And when do you start? Because, I mean, I guess you have this conversation with your three-year-old in one way and you have it with your 10-year-old in another way, but you're tying, you're tying your choices to actual values, to bigger exactly. goals. And I, and I think you start from the earliest possible moment. You know, when Sesame Street, after a decades-long ban of talking about money uh, on the show, literally for decades they hadn't wanted to talk about it because they didn't want to highlight differences between children, they finally realized that that was unrealistic, and, and they decided they needed to come up with an age-appropriate way of doing this. And so, you know, all of the propeller head PhDs, uh, you know, at the Children's Television Workshop, you know, they got a yeah. bunch of child development experts running around there. They all kind of huddled, and they looked at the studies, and they determined that kids at the age of three are ready to talk about wants and needs and the difference between the two. They get it. And so, you know, you can start pretty early on with sort of talking about trade-offs and why um, some things aren't really uh, um, a need, even though you may want them very badly. It's true. And also the kids are listening to your conversations with your spouse or others. They hear, they overhear anyway. So they're already hearing, you know, parts of that conversation. Now you're just basically saying we're going to address them more directly and, and do right. it, I guess, I mean, more not only are yeah, not only are they hearing it, but, but they're also misconstruing what you're saying. Exactly. Right? They're hearing little snippets, and they're coming to the wrong conclusions about whether you're rich or whether you're poor or how much you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have questions about this. And, and they're also watching what you do. You know, they're seeing where you go. They're seeing how you spend. Um, you know, they're seeing uh, the size of your home or the car that you're choosing to drive, whether it's a, you know, brand-new fancy one or, you know, a, a, a much older um a used one, and um, and they're you know they're they're making drawing conclusions and sometimes even making judgments. Uh, you bet. Uh, sometimes silently. So you know we might as well engage them in the conversation. It's it's so true. I mean, heaven forbid. I mean, kids are there to be seen, not heard, Ron. Um, uh, well, right. right. <laughs> so, that, that, so that's but you know you get to an important point there. I mean, we we mock that, yeah. right? But if but if we were raised that way. There's a little voice in our head telling us that money questions are, um, you know, inappropriate. Taboo, the yeah. Answers are are none of their business, right? Um, that is, uh, it is inappropriate. It is impolitic. Uh, it is impolite. Um, and and so our instinct, particularly if they ask us in front of other people, uh, maybe to sort of shut them down. But that's not what we want either. But we want them to think that we are the source of all of the world's known and especially important information. <laughs> not right. Google, not their friends on the playground, not the newspaper, but us. It, it really is negotiation skills and and management skills that you're teaching because the needs and the wants don't always align, and yet – a lot of times we don't ever show our children how to process through it. And, and you know, we don't always talk about our underlying deeper yeses that are helping us make these day-to-day decisions. So you're just saying teach the skill of 
of talking about it, understanding it, comparing it to a value. I mean, it's just skills you're teaching. Right. I mean, they really are communication skills, first and foremost. Yeah. Because I know that every every family um, will have, uh, you know, different answers to some of these questions. And even, you know, families who are very similar, families of the same socioeconomic status or families of the same race or families of the same faith yeah. uh, will have very different answers. Um, and so... Um, and we can't uh, just so leave you, it. Um, we yeah. can't leave this yeah. all up to hoping they get it. I mean, this is something mm-hmm. that now kids, you know, will leave and they can easily get in debt in credit cards. They can easily get in debt with student loan. I mean, mm-hmm. they're being preyed upon in many regards, so they've got to be skilled. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the most important things to realize here, right? Right. That we're pushing them into a world where they're making, you know, in some cases, six-figure decisions at the age of 17 about which college to go to and five-figure decisions about how much debt to take on. Yeah. They're graduating into a world where they have to buy health insurance, where retirement is basically up to them. Um, you know, a world where we probably have not taxed ourselves enough to pay for the promises that we've made to one another uh, as a society. And so taxes may go up or services may go down, but, you know, everything is going to get more expensive, which is not to scare people, just to say the kids need to be ready. And it is our job to make them ready because you can no longer afford to sort of lose your 20s, um, you know, making That's a bunch right. of financial mistakes along the way. That's so true. We're talking with Ron Lieber, uh, who is a personal finance columnist for The New York Times and author of the book, The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, Ron's going to continue to teach us more of his more ideas, more tools from the book, but also help us focus as well on how to raise generous kids. How do you raise children that are willing to give? And again, another principle, and then they can give any way, you know, you want to teach that to, that type of giving. But how do we do it? How do we instill in them some of these powerful principles, modesty, patience, thrift, perspective? Up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back, friends. Again, the money questions in life, they never go away. You're always going to have them. And do you wish your parents had sat down and taught you more, more about how not to be, you know, spoiled, how to be grounded, how to be generous, how to be smart about your money? That is the title of the book, The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Ron Lieber is joining us on the phone. He's a personal finance columnist for the New York Times and uh, a father as well, and basically is helping us today to figure out how to not spoil our kids, but instead empower them, giving them the tools they need, and really the conversations, the grounding they need to, uh, to get some some progress financially. Ron, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Thanks again for having me. You bet. Are you out of the taxi yet? I am. Now I'm in the lobby of the New York Times building. I found a quiet corner. Oh, what a guy. <laughs> we'll try to we'll try, we, slowly, Ron, we're going to get you to your office. One break at a time. <laughs> hey, uh, talk to us more, a little bit more about, um, you know, the idea of getting because you're not just trying to teach people to not be spoiled. You're actually trying to instill the principles that help 
you know, modesty, patience, thrift, giving. So, so how do we create more generous kids? Sure. Well, you know, look, in general, money to me is first and foremost a tool for learning. It is for practice. That is what allowance is for. You have the kids, you know, divide the money up into at least three jars, you know, a save jar for some longer term goals, a spend jar for impulse purchases and a gift jar. Um, now, depending on your family and what it stands for, uh, you know, you may um, have them put 50% of their allowance or more uh, into the gift jar. Maybe you match the money that they uh, keep in the gift jar. Uh, you may have a separate jar uh, for tithing or other contributions to, um, you know, whatever house of worship uh, moves you. Um, you know, it kind of depends on the family, but I think, um, you know, it should start with a foundational principle that, um, if you are lucky enough uh, to, well, you know, live in the United States of America in the first place, um, if you are lucky enough to have an intact family, if you are lucky enough to have a home, if you are lucky enough to go to a good school and have friends and, you know, parents who are still alive, uh, then you are more lucky, more fortunate than many other people and that you have a responsibility uh, to help. Uh, to help others. And so, true. so, you know, depending on your, what, on your family, you may, um, you know, say to your kids, okay, well, um, whatever it is that we give, um, to the church, uh, you know, is what we will give and we will count on, uh, you know, the church to redistribute that money in whatever way is most appropriate. Or maybe we have two jars. Maybe we have a jar for tithing and a separate jar that the kid can give to whatever or whoever they want, you know, yeah. anyone or anything locally that they think needs help. And it's fun to see, you know, what they do with that when we give them that much freedom. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and I think just the idea, too, that you're also going to have a savings jar. I mean, that's a jar a lot of times. It's like in our world, we, we have a tithing jar, so they give 10% to church and other charities, and then we always have kind of the spending jar. But the, the, the idea of savings is, is it's almost mind-boggling how many people are just not living with any type of savings, just paycheck to paycheck. Right. And, you know, sometimes that's, that's because they literally cannot afford to or every time yeah. they try to save. You know, there's an emergency that comes up that— um, you know, where the save, save jar or the savings account or the retirement account simply has to be rated to keep them in their home. But, you know, there are other people for whom um, saving never became a habit. Yeah. And part of what we're trying to do with our kids is teach them good habits. And if they learn to wait, if they learn to yearn, if they learn to be patient, and if, in fact, we force them to do that, even if we could buy them just about anything that they want, if we force them to do that, uh, and we when we have them doing it for ten or twelve or fourteen years uh, until we kick, kick them out or they leave home, yeah. uh, then you know we'll have been doing our job. And you've yeah, they have finally learned that you can have anything you want to earn. You just can't have it all right now. Exactly. That's right. That's it's such a good lesson. It seems like a no brainer, but I mean it really is. And I think sometimes you know we we want our kids to have it better than we've even had it. And yet, um, that's not always healthy to to just well, give yeah, it to them. You you identify something important there, right? If you've been lucky enough to take a you know a step up in socioeconomic class, uh, your first instinct may be to remember the raw feelings of you know yearning or jealousy or envy that you had mm-hmm. of other kids or other families who had more or of, you know, you having to work 20 hours a week in high school 
and you may, you know, declare uh, loudly, no matter what your spouse says or thinks, um, that it will be different for your child, and your child will not struggle, and your child will not suffer. Um, But that may not actually be the best thing for your child. Um, There may, in fact, be a reason that you turned out as successful as you did, and maybe it was because you had to work. Maybe it was because you had to wait. Maybe it was because you had to think about money more than the average kid. It's so true. Do you talk about your belief in working for these kids. Uh, what age do you suggest we start pushing that? And um, do you have any, you know, have any insight, things that we should watch out for when it comes to that? So, you know, as far as working for money goes, working for an employer who is not uh, a blood relative, yeah. um, I think every kid should. Um, and um, many of the most successful parents I interviewed for the book um, you know, actually uh, forced their kids to pay for the first semester of their college tuition because they wanted them to have skin in the game. Such so, a good you know, idea. A parents, yeah, yeah I, th- I think it is, too. I mean, you know, everybody should have the experience of having a boss who really doesn't care a lick about them, uh, you know, who will fire them and, and not give them, a, a you know, a second chance if they don't perform up to standards. Um, and so, you know, that, that's a good experience to have. Um, you know, many parents default to time uh, allowance to, to chores, and they think that that will teach kids um, a good work ethic. But, you know, in the real world, you don't actually get paid for housework unless you're um, uh, a housekeeper, right. uh, you know, which is a perfectly honorable profession. But, you know, many, if not most of our kids will not grow up to be housekeepers. And so, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, in the quote unquote real world that parents are trying to prepare the kids for, uh, the adults do not get paid for housework. They just do it for free because they live there. And I think the same thing uh, ought to be true for kids. There are plenty of ways to teach them a work ethic, and perhaps the best one is to send them off to work for somebody else when they are 14 or 15, so they learn it that way. It's so true. A lot of times I hear my the friends, as they talk about their kids, they're like, yeah, we just consider getting good grades um, part of working. What's your take on that? I think these are two different things, and it is certainly a uh, kid's job, um, you know, to apply themselves in school. Um, but, you know, nobody pays you to study when you're a grown-up un- unless you're a-, a college professor, and really they're, they're mostly paying you to teach and um, you know, be an administrator right. and serve on university committees at that point. Um, they're not paying you so much, um, you know, for your scholarship. Uh, in some cases they are, but, I mean, you get the idea, yeah. right? So, um, a you know, to me, um, being a good student is just one of many responsibilities that kids ought to have and doing a whole bunch of chores way more actually than we think that they are capable of and doing them for free uh, ought to be high up on that list of responsibilities as well. So true. When, when, when you think about this, I mean, how's the book being received? It seems like in a way we just the more I look through it and the more I read about uh, your positions, we don't we don't do this very well. And again, I have six kids and I haven't done it as well as I need to do it. Um, What are you hearing from the parents that are receiving your book? You know, I'm hearing a couple of things that are gratifying. And the first thing I'm hearing is that um, we just haven't had enough of these conversations uh, yet, and now's the time to start, and, you know, we're going to talk more out loud and think more out loud, even if we don't have the answers right away, right. so that we know 
parents and, and so that our kids know that grappling with these issues, you know, as a family is not just okay, but that it's highly valued. Um, and then the other thing that I've heard is that, you know, that's completely um, gratifying is that, you know, I, I, um, I, I've heard from, from people of faith from all over the United States and, and really outside of the United States too, um, Mormons, Jews. Christians. I was on the the, the, the Muslim debt free podcast a week or two ago. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Um, you know, people um, of all faiths and people who um, are not believers uh, are embracing it. I, there's a whole riff in the book about grace and the importance of regular of regular rituals of gratitude. And you know, if you're a person of faith, you probably have some sort of um, gratitude ritual that involves um, you know thanking uh, uh, God or 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 some Holy Spirit of some sort. Um, But, you know, for people who are not believers, um, gratitude rituals can be just as powerful. And, and, you know, you don't need to um, close your eyes and hold hands if that makes you uncomfortable. You can raise a glass and a toast. Yeah. Um, And and kids love toasting. You know, it feels grown up and visceral and loud and kind of funny. And, (laughs) you know, you can raise your glass to anyone or anything that was awesome that day. And and you can do gratitude that way. So, you know, that's another thing that I found um, gratifying. Oh, totally. And again, by the way, another basic principle, uh, gratitude. Uh, well, Ron, I think you've done a great job. And as a parent, I can hardly wait to get home and start sharing the conversations. Again, the conversations are probably the key here. Everybody go out and check the, out the book, The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Your Money. Ron Lieber, again, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being with us. Truly is uh, just about conversations and principles, opening up those dialogues, the discussion with your family. Let's try to be a little more transparent in our own money issues. That's how the kids are going to learn. We'll come back. By the way, what if you were a stay-at-home dad? Wouldn't it be great to get some lessons from the stay-at-home dads? Up next, we're going to be talking with um, a blogger, Andrew Knott, and also a stay-at-home dad. He's going to teach us the art of letting go of some things He's also going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, stay-at-home dads uniting. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, do you remember in 1983 that film, Mr. Mom? There's a story of the adventures of a father switching spots with his wife. Remember that? He lost his job, stays home, meets every obstacle from carpools, shopping, doing the crazy vacuuming stuff with all these comedic results. But let's be honest, the stereotype is way off the mark. Did you know that, in fact, according to a Pew Research poll last year, Dads make up 16% of at-home caretakers. 16% of the at-home, staying at-home caretakers are fathers. Andrew Knott is a stay-at-home dad and a contributor to the Huffington Post. He gave some great advice in his recent article, Parenting 101, Learning to Let Go. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Uh, Thanks, Matt. Uh, Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, Great article, uh, The Art of Letting Go, Parenting 101. I mean, here you are, stay-at-home dad, and yet there's a lot of pressure 
to to get stuff done, to do stuff supposedly the right way, the right the way all, everybody else is doing it, and to keep up with the Joneses. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a challenge. I, you know, I face. You know, our stay-at-home parents in general, be it moms or dads. Yeah. Um, I think face every day. You know? we, and uh, we have to learn to let it go, though, is part of the premise of your article. Um, what what have you learned about letting it go? Yeah, well, what I wrote about there was, um, you know, it was one particular event that I was, you know, just an everyday thing, just working on folding some laundry, a load of laundry, and yeah. the kids were around. I have a three-year-old <laughs> and a uh, 11-month-old, so you can imagine how that goes. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, it's, you know, you think I can knock this out in 15 minutes, and then an hour later, you know, the clothes are everywhere, and... You fold it, um, they unfold it. You fold it, they exactly. unfold it. And they, they climb into the laundry basket. And so, you know, I, so I kind of figured out, you know, well, these type of things, you know, they can get you frustrated. I mean, they can get me frustrated because oh, I like yeah. to spin it. And, um, but, you know, you just kind of have to shift your perspective sometimes and say, this isn't going to happen right now, you know. And, um, you know, it, it might take me two times, three times as long to get, some tasks done that, you know, if I was by myself, I could do. Yeah, I mean, how many times or... have we begged for that? Oh, I wish these kids would go to bed. If they go to bed, then I could hurry and do the laundry. And But you have great pictures in your blog. It's um, And it, everybody's got to go check out your blog there because there's pictures of the kid in the laundry basket, having fun, climbing in it, you know, playing in it. And you almost, you know, you don't want to ruin it. You don't want to ruin the relationship all in an effort to get your laundry done in 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. You just got to, you know, you just, I just found, you know, I just step back and say, this moment's a lot more important than getting a little laundry done. So, um, what, what, have, what have you learned? How have you learned? How do you let go of kind of some of those desires to be more efficient, to kind of to have, maybe even have a little more control when you actually have to kind of release control when you're dealing with kids a lot of times. What, what have you learned about that? Um, yeah, like I said, I think it's just kind of changing my mindset going in. Um, like, you know, I kind of, you know, set aside, you know, that time when you know, I'm home with the kids by myself and that's the priority. So, you know, if I can get some other stuff done during that time, great. If it doesn't have to be done, then, put it off until later, you know, and at night or early in the morning before they get up. So, you know, it's just, I think it's just a matter of, you know, setting the priorities that way. You bet. It's helped me, you know. It seems like, um, you know, having your voice and you talking to us about being a stay-at-home anything, it seems like you've got to, there's got to be moments where you're just frustrated, lonely, uh, maybe not feeling supported. So as a stay-at-home parent, and, and I think women feel that and men feel that, do, talk about that a little bit. How what what do we need to understand about those parents that are staying home um, intentionally and and trying to 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 be effective? How could we just be more supportive if we're away? Yeah, I think um, a lot of it I've found is just. Uh, that appreciation that it's an important endeavor, you know, in itself. I think it's for both moms and dads. I yeah. think it's kind of, uh, kind of lost a little bit. Um, 
And uh, actually, yeah, I would say our situation is pretty unique because within the last year, I started working like part time um, in addition to staying home. Okay, yeah, full time. So we were both. I think I kind of describe our our situation as both stay at home parents because mm. one of us is home pretty all much the time. We yeah, kind of we split our when she's you know she works she's a nurse so she works twelve hour shifts three or four days a week and yeah. And then the couple of days she's off, I, I can go into work and then uh, you know, she'll stay home. So, you know, we kind of both, you know, that's how we were lucky enough to be able to do it. And that's the way we you know, wanted to do it while they were little, especially. So you really kind um, of you consciously decided as a couple, we want to have we want to have one of us stay at home with the child as much as we can be there as they're growing up. Right. Yeah. If we, as long as we had the chance to do it, we were going to do it. And um yeah, the first two years I stayed at home, and that's all I did. Yeah. Within the last year, I picked up a little extra. Um, but yeah, you know, I, some of the, especially those first two years, some of the conversations I had with people, they would they would always ask, you know, so what do you do? If they didn't really know me. <laughs> yeah. And um, I've written about this too, and that, you know, I would say, oh, I stay at home with the kids, and especially if it's like a. A lot of times, especially when it was other men asking me this, they would kind of laugh and say, no, really, what do you do? No, really, dude, what do you do? No, really, what do you do? Right. <laughs> it's interesting. So and, I mean, yeah. so that's got to take a toll on your just your psyche if everyone's questioning your value. Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, you know, that was definitely a conversation stopper every time that happened. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's got to be a weird thing, too, when you're the stay-at-home dad. If 16% of at-home caretakers are the men – there may not be, it seems like, as many groups, as many organizations, maybe as many book clubs or, or play groups. Yeah. I mean, and it's got to be weird being the man at the play group. I mean, just because yeah. you're the only guy there and you may, they may not feel as comfortable with you hanging out at the park right. with them. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely true. Um, you know, I, yeah, I've, I've written about um, some of my other posts about, you know, going to the playground and it's always the groups of moms there. So you're just kind of, you know. Yeah, definitely kind of on the outside. Yeah, you know? <laughs> not really. I mean, both some of it's, I think, by choice. At least for me, my personality is not one to seek out a lot of group activities. But yeah, you know, even just the option of it, I think it's it's kind of a. It would be more of a challenge, probably. It's not quite there. Um, again, your blog is called Not Just a Blog. dot Blogspot. dot com, and your article is picked up by Huffington. And it's basically Parenting 101, The Art of Letting Go, Stay-at-Home Dads Unite. Um, well, and any other advice you give stay-at-home dads to be able to let go? I mean, it's so hard. I just remember when I'd want to get something done with my kids, I'd just turn it into a competition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was certainly efficient. Uh, you know, it usually ended in a fight as well. But um, talk about just talk about any other advice for any parent, really, to be able to let some stuff go, let let, you know, a chore or a task you've been meaning to do not get in the way of building the relationship. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it just goes down to, you know, like I said, just recognizing what's really important. Yeah. Um, you know, those tasks are always going to be there. <laughs> they are, aren't yeah. they? And you know, your kids aren't always going to be there. So. Um, you know, I think that's, I, I mean, it's not definitely not easy to do. It's not, uh, you know, I, you know, struggle with it every day, but, you know, it's just kind of, 
trying to maintain that perspective. An example you give in your article is, you know, what you need to let go is the the need to spend two – when you're spending two hours cooking a dinner that would normally take 30 minutes because you're either balancing a 10-month-old on your hip while somehow attempting to chop onions or you're performing periodic suicide sprints across the kitchen to stop the said uh, 10-month-old from devouring dog food. Just let it go. (laughs) Yes. Just let it go. Well, I I appreciate your insight and the article as well. Everybody, go check out Andrew Knott's uh, blog, Not Just a Blog. If you just go Google Knott, K-N-O-T-T, K-N-O-T-T, just a blog dot blogspot dot com. You'll find out more from Andrew Knott's. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you being on the show. It really is a thankless, thankless job. Parenting is anyway, really. Uh, it's just thankless. I have a son that's in Mexico right now that is coming home. This is just par for the course. He's in Mexico. He should be coming home four or five months or so. And I had a dream over the weekend that was so vivid that when he when he pulled up, when the, when the airplane pulled up and he got off the airplane, he walked out looking like Tom Hanks in Castaway with a beard after being on a deserted island. He was emaciated, dragging a leg, carrying a... FIFA FIFA soccer ball because he was coming from Mexico and he didn't talk very well. His lips were chapped, huge beard. And I'm like, you know, he was just serving an LDS mission as a missionary down there. But it terrified me. Like, what if this guy comes home and we have to rehab him and he can't talk? And what if he has a bunch of facial hair? It's a thankless job being a parent. Maybe even more thankless if you're a stay-at-home parent, especially when a lot of the population think you should be out making money, working. Come on. We're taking care of what matters most. We're going to take a break, my friends. Last hour coming up after this break on The Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools, the ideas, the insight, the information, the solutions to build your good life. Everybody's after the good life. We're all looking for it. Everybody needs to kind of build their own, mold their own. So we like to oblige by giving you the tools that you need. Whether you got a family or friends, whether you need friends, or whether coming up later in this hour, your communication and negotiation skills aren't quite what they need to be. We've got a topic today. Maybe we need to stop judging. A lot of us are judging. And we might, we're going to talk about things that you might do that is, it's judgmental and you may not even know you're judging somebody. Like, did you know that if you agree with people, you're judging? I agree with that. Thank you. That felt judgmental. I don't agree with that at all. If you disagree, judgmental. It's a lose-lose situation. See, so you're both very judgmental people. If you analyze, wow, that sounds like you sounds like you're really worried about that, Matt. You're kind of judging it. So, all communication is a form of judging. Close, sure. 
unless you're just giving data. But then aren't you making some sort of value judgment on what data to share? Yeah. So there's judgment. Judging. Yeah, no. Aldo Civico would say no. Okay. You guys are messed up, but he'd say it more eloquently. Right. Because that sounded judgmental, (laughs) which I don't want to be. We're going to be talking about that. Maybe we just need to find a different way to communicate. Stop judging. Become a better communicator. (sighs) I've been wanting you guys to learn this forever. What, to stop judging? Mm -hmm. So I'm having Aldo on. Okay. Dr. Aldo Civico. He'll be up after a bit. Well, speaking of judgment. Oh, boy. What? The Secret Service has been an embattled department of our government for quite a while now. They've been in trouble, yeah. They've had uh, a few mistakes. A few mistakes dealing with the White House and Uh security. Guys running in, just running in. There's been a couple more in the last 12 hours. More what? uh, They call them two separate attempts to penetrate the White House grounds. Oh, boy. The first incident around 1130 Sunday night. Yeah. A man arrested after he climbed over a bicycle rack. Okay. I'm not sure how a bicycle rack is your... Your key point of, of My kids security. climb over bicycle racks. They, yeah. So he tried to access the White House grounds that way. Uh-huh. Around 6.45 in the morning today, yeah. another man tried to get into the White House by walking through a door into a construction site at Pennsylvania Avenue and uh, oh, the rest of the address. So he's trying to get in and he, there's a construction yeah. area and he just tried to sneak his way through. Well, maybe it's not a, maybe he's just made a mistake. Right. You know, maybe. I was in D.C. Uh, on, on a trip once and got confused and walked the wrong way. And I didn't walk into the White House, but. Uh, you know what? I, I don't want to I don't want to start, you know, a major international thing here. Right. But. The Portuguese embassy was a little <laughs> off put by what? my, my uh, appearance. But that's fine. I, I reached my hand through the White House fence. All right. And. Back in the day, the Clintons had a black Labrador that actually ended up dying in a car accident when they moved, when they were done with office. And the Clintons' black Labrador licked my hand. The the official uh, presidential dog walker okay. was taking the lab on a walk. And I said, is that the Clintons' dog? And she said, absolutely. And I stuck my hand through the fence. And and you, came there, there wasn't like a warning shot from the no. snipers or anything? No, okay. but I did see bullets flying. <laughs> I heard him. Get back. Stand back. Yeah. No, they were very nice. And so, uh, you know, the Secret Service, they know when to act and when not to act. Right. I was just being an interested citizen. And there's two more incidences today. So we'll see where that goes. <sighs> Something's going on. China's monthly movie revenue edged out Hollywood's for the first time ever in February. Really? Making it the world's leading box office for that month. So does that mean China is booming in the movie world, or does that just mean Hollywood's having a really bad month? February is a slow month, usually. Slow month. Which is crazy, because it could be the movies about love, right? But we, instead, we got Sniper yeah, and uh, Cracking Code Guy. Yeah. The rest of the, the Oscar nominees. Chinese theaters took in $650 million, while the U.S. came in at $640 million. What uh, what was the leading movie? Does it top say? grossing film in China for, yeah. for the month of February was The Man from Macau Two, mm. followed by Dragon Blade. Oh, wow! You know, sounds good. regionally specific movies that yeah. are are causing the uh, have you the rise in box office form. James, have you had a Dragon Blade? 
Um, I've looked into purchasing one, but I uh, haven't gotten it yet. By the way, we're going to James because James is the expert on the show. The house when expert. When it comes to knives and blades. Yes. Okay. Yep. You ought to get- uh, Is it a cutlery or- You ought to get McNaughty. Ceremonial or- Yes, okay. all of the above. You, you ought to get, get McNaughty a little dragon blade. Yeah. Is that her name? Yeah. McNaughty? That, well, that's why I've been trying to get one is I think it would be a nice collection for her. Maybe they have knives. a dragon lady blade. Oh, Oh, I should look into that. On my satellite TV service? Yeah. Every weekend, the Knife Channel. Really? It just it's they pay for it, it <laughs> pops up on one of these pay channels and it's like the QVC of knives. They have a knife channel? It is so awesome. There's what? like samurai swords. You can go in and like buy like 108 knives for a dollar a piece. Why? Why? Wow. And why? I watch cuz I why? wanted to know why you would do that and they go, well, you know, when you go to the swap meet, yeah. You need product. Yeah. So if you buy these and then you sell each knife for like five bucks a piece, you just made $4 profit on every knife. Mm-hmm. Mm. Why not? Why and not? Every one of these sets comes with like three samurai swords because you need a samurai you sword. You know, I think a better deal is just to get a job. Or a samurai sword. And watching this guy try to explain the uniqueness of oh. every single knife in a unique way in itself is just interesting. This Dragon one blade. is sharp. It's, it's quite sharp. Yeah, it's you, sharp. This knife cuts both ways. <laughs> it's really interesting. My wife hates it. I turn on and go, ooh, the knife show. And she's like, oh, not the knife show again. Ah, uh, the knife show. I need to look into that. They have combat knives, big ones, small is ones. Is this before you got a job? Folders. No, this is every weekend. Oh, boy, Terry. It's become a thing. Terry, let me just talk to you as a coach, as a relationship expert. Yes. You need to get a hobby. I know, but the knife show is so fun. <laughs> you need a hobby you can share with the missus. It looks like... They have some sort of cardboard set kind of set up in yeah. a I used to like the ones where they would, like, they would cut a can, and then they'd still be able to cut the tomato yeah. so you could read the newspaper. Like, it cuts through nails, yes. and then they go over and they chop a tomato. Yeah. yeah. Great stuff. Man. Wow. Okay, that's good stuff, I guess. I guess that's good. I it mean, is? I'm not saying. Knife show, I recommend it. Okay, so uh, anybody that wants to go, you know, fight with your spouse, be bored. The Knife Show? The Knife Show. I'm there. Um, (laughs) Excuse me. We had a great guest that I I really want you guys to listen to because this this guy's the real deal. His name is uh, Dr. Aldo Civico. He's an anthropologist, conflict resolution expert and mediator, and he's telling us that we may harm our interpersonal relationships every time we express a judgment, be it negative or positive. So if every time you're always like being too nice, positive, they may question what you're doing. And if you're always negative and judging what people say, they're going to question what you're doing. We'll uh, bring on Dr. Aldo Civico, a professor at Rutgers University and a conflict resolution lecturer at Columbia University. He's up next, my friends. He's going to walk us through healthier communication, less judgment. Up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if I say the word judgmental, you probably think of the high school cheerleader gossiping about the geek, you know, or the football quarterback making fun of the nerd. But have you ever thought that praising somebody is also being judgmental? 
Dr. Aldo Chivico is an anthropologist, conflict resolution expert, and mediator. He says we may be harming ourselves and our interpersonal relationships every time we express a judgment, be it negative or positive. Dr. Chivico is a professor at Rutgers University and an expert in conflict resolution. He has been um, providing conflict resolution advice and skills and tools to help build national and local governments as well as communities and businesses. He's here with us today to tell us how we can stop judging and become better communicators. Dr. Chivico, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You bet. It's great to have you. I mean, you've been learning these conflict resolution skills dealing with, you know, countries, Colombia, Mexico, Haiti, to the Western Balkans. You've been in some pretty serious conflict mediation negotiations. Is is that how you kind of started taking these ideas and maybe uh, bringing them down to a more interpersonal level? Uh, yeah, that's definitely, you know, the, the, the global conflict, uh, some of them seemingly intractable, violent, uh, those were the spaces, the environment where I honed those skills and uh, how do you connect, how you do, do you bond with people, uh, some of them who are armed and causing a lot of harm to, uh, to people. But I also realized then by honing those skills in the field that I was then using those same skills in much less dramatic situation, if you want, in my everyday life yeah. uh, to, to create meaningful relationships. And and so that, that's why also I have this blog on psychology today, because I think that a lot of the skills and strategies and principles that high-end mediators use in a very complex situation can be used by all of us uh, just to make our life easier and, and negotiate a better life for ourselves, if you want. You bet. And it's, you mentioned the word judgment a lot and um, in your article on psychology today, but you talk about how we constantly judge and we do so exclusively from our own point of reference. Maybe just talk to us a little bit about judgment because it does come up in a lot of our conversations and I've been a divorce mediator as well and it's just that subtle little tone of judgment that might be causing and keeping this fight going. Sure, and and you know, it's very true that um, we don't even realize it, but we constantly evaluate throughout uh, the day, right? We yeah. constantly make evaluations and judgments if something is good or bad, uh, if something uh, is nice, uh, beautiful, or ugly, and so on. And especially, I would say, in our Western world, we, we are used to have this sort of binary judgment about everything. Um, and what we don't realize is that uh, when we then jump on those judgments and express those, jump, uh, uh, those judgments, then we create really a um, roadblock in, in our interpersonal relationship because we define a situation in a very categorical way sometimes, and especially if we, if we are dealing with a difficult situation or a difficult person. And what we do is really to block the channel of communication. Uh, and and uh, to know to know advantage of a relationship and actually with the risk of escalating our conflict. So uh, it's not about not having a judgment or having evaluation. I, again, that's part of actually of being human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are cultural beings, and so we, we project and we give constantly meaning to our own experience. So that's that's fine. But it's when we absolutize our own point of view and we make it sort of a dogma. Then uh, we we block uh, really the possibility to the other of expressing himself or herself, offering maybe a different view and different take on the same situation, 
which could be also for us very insightful and help us to nourish our relationships. It's so true. We do. Absolutize is a great word for it, where we it sounds like we, we take a position and we, we advocate it so strongly that we almost don't let the other person even have an opinion. Yeah, we, we let ourselves being uh, sort of uh, hostage of our own opinion, right? Uh-huh. And and uh, and we also one one of the things that I that I see happen, you know, happen to me, and, and and I see it around happening a lot of time is that when we have a strong opinion, we put ourselves on a higher moral pedestal, and and we talk down to people, we look down at situation. Yeah. Right? Uh, but but all of those all those even in that sense, as you were saying in the introduction, even when we express something positive, right? If we do it from a sense of higher up position, we might block the uh, communication and the interpersonal relation in the same way. It's, it's so interesting because we, we don't usually think of being judged positively, but it, you're kind of almost saying more if, I, if I'm judged, if I'm trying to put myself above you while I'm saying it, that creates like a weird hierarchy. Yes, absolutely. It's a power dynamic. And, and so if I express something, a compliment or something positive, right, in, in, in a very categorical way, uh, I might, you know, force yeah. the other, especially especially if I'm in a power dynamic, right, I might force the other to adjust his or her position to what I just expressed, uh, killing in that moment, if you want, the opportunity for the other person to give a more different nuanced uh, evaluation of the same of the same experience. We're talking with Dr. Aldo Civico, who is at Rutgers University, is an anthropology professor and a conflict resolution expert and lecturer at Columbia University. It's such a nuanced idea, isn't it, Aldo? That it's um, it's what you're what you're trying to teach us is something that is so subtle. But I like how in your article on psychology today, you kind of break judging down into different forms. So let's maybe go through some of those because it seems like that might make it less subtle in a way. We, we get, like, for example, you say criticizing is that, – that seems to be like the obvious form of judgment, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's uh, – it, it's the obvious problem is also the most um, – practice one, yeah. what we don't realize is how many times when we express a negative assessment, uh, we just, uh, as, as I say, we put ourselves on a higher moral ground and we just block the communication, right? Yeah. And, and it doesn't really matter if, if, um, you know, if we might be correct or, or, or right or wrong. Uh, it is really about, in conflict resolution, I think it's really about creating the space so that everybody can express himself or herself, right? And, and when you criticize, you put the other person on a defense. You bet. And, 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 that, and that, of course, can escalate the, 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 the conflict uh, or, or the problem, the crisis that you are facing. Or, or, you know, you don't even have to be in a bad situation where, you know, there is rage or just in that your everyday conversation, every time you criticize in a strong way, you block, you block communication. So... My invitation is to become aware of that so that we give more space also to others to create that space of peace, I like to call it, where others can can emerge and express their own ideas and values and uh, evaluations as well. Do you know where we see a lot of this um, is in like on like talk radio where somebody will, you know, the host or whatever will will talk and they'll state their opinion as if it's fact. They'll actually like they will state it as if it's it's a fact, um, even when they're not even stating real data. They're stating an opinion, 
but it sounds so strong and so convincing that you almost don't want to take it on because, wow, yeah, yeah you're, you're factual. Right. Yeah, you're right. And, and, and actually, I think that, you know, where, where cable news is going and, and with social media use, and all of those are great instruments, right, in, 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 in itself. Right. But the kind of use we make uh, sometimes might not be really conducive to a dialogue. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I see one of the trends that I see uh, here in our country is that because we have now, you know, cable news more specialized in uh, sending the message to my own ideology, to my own beliefs, um, we, we become so, so so radicalized, if you want, in our opinions that we are losing the habit of actually listening mm. to the other point of view. Yeah. Right. And 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 I think that. You know, an unintended consequence of how cable news is uh, shaped today is that we are less used to hear different ideas, different visions, and listening to them and have a dialogue about a diversity of, uh, of opinion. I love it. You keep using the word dialogue, and it happens to be – I did a master's thesis on it. It happens to be one of my favorite theories around but dialogue then is you're actually you're presenting it as it's a different idea than just debate. I mean, we could go debate oh, yeah, all day absolutely. long. Dialogue is this open right. conversation that you're trying to create. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, in, in a debate, what you try to do is actually to convince yeah, win. the other or, or your audience. It's, it's a win and lose kind of situation, right? Yeah. So you are actually affirming in a stronger way every time you have a chance to talk your truth, right? And, and it's competing with the truth of the other. Yeah. In a dialogue, uh, it's not about convincing or converting the other. It's about getting to know the other, mm-hmm. right? So in, in a dialogue, you actually make space by almost, I would say, setting yourself aside or setting yourself in parentheses so that the other person can, can, uh, uh, can talk and discover. And, and it's not that you then buy in or you convert or you're embraced totally. But I think that each one of us is a piece of truth, and if we, if you are in a dialogue, right, we we uh, we can discover something about ourselves yeah. that the other is reflecting. You know, I, yeah. I bring that I bring that in in a if you want into a more religious context in 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 a in a space of interreligious dialogue, yeah. right, where Jewish and Muslim, Catholic and whoever might dialogue. It's not about convincing the other, you know, uh, I'm Catholic. So if I dialogue with a Muslim, it's not about me want to become a Muslim or fearing of becoming a Muslim and, and, and the other way around. Yeah. But if I'm in a dialogue, the Muslim might express something of his faith that, that even is able to enlighten some of my own truth. Right? And, and I think that that's just one, um, which, by the way, I think it's very important today, in the climate where we where we are, uh, I, I think there is a strong connection between peace building and, and interreligious dialogue. But that's also true for everything, even when it comes to political ideologies. You right? bet. And 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 I think we need to be educated and re-educated uh, to to a dialogue and nourishing that dialogue, and opening spaces for that dialogue, so that we have a more. Um, if you want approach uh, to our everyday life. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Again, we're talking with Dr. Aldo Chivico uh, from Rutgers University, an anthropologist and conflict resolution expert. This idea of dialogue allows everybody to be influenced. So you're still in it. You're having a conversation, but your goal isn't to win. Your goal is to 
understand and to have everybody grow in the dialogue, which keeps us a little bit more open. It's more about being influenced and understanding than it is just about winning your position at all costs. Otherwise, think about that, folks. If you are always the better debater, then I guess you're going to always win. But that doesn't always mean you're always right, and it doesn't mean you're going to benefit, and it doesn't mean by any way, shape, or form you're going to get me to buy in, which is what we're seeing. Just in our world dynamic, nobody's listening to each other. We're just calling each other names, beating each other up. And uh, interestingly, the only one that wins, actually, the only one everybody loses, nobody wins in that game. We'll come back more with Dr. Aldo Chivico. Uh, More ideas and, and insights as to other forms of judgment we may be using in our conversations. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are talking with Dr. Aldo Chivico, and uh, Aldo is a professor at Rutgers, an anthropologist there. He's also um, the director of the Center, or was the director of the Center for the International Conflict Resolution at Columbia University. He's been an informal advisor to the U.S. State Department on the Colombian peace process, and he runs his own company called Accordo Consulting. You can go to his website uh, at Aldo, A-L-D-O, C-V-I-C-O, or Chivico, C-I-V-I-C-O dot com. Aldo Civico is how it's pronounced or uh, how it sounds, but uh, C-I-V-I-C-O dot com. And so we welcome you back, Dr. Aldo Chivico. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Great talking to you. I love this topic. Um, Talk about some other forms of judging. In the Psychology Today article that you wrote, criticizing was one. Name-calling's another, right? So the minute we start throwing name-calling around, pure judgment and labeling in there. Yeah, absolutely. We When we uh, name-call someone, we put someone in the box, right? And yeah. In some, and sometimes not only do we put someone in the box, but we also diminish that person. Right. Uh, this is why, uh, you, you know, it, if you want to have the extreme example of that, um, the, the phases leading up to genocide are characterized, one of the things that they are characterized by is, is name-calling. You know, we, I, I mentioned in my article the case of uh, Rwanda, right, where uh, the name of insects were attributed to a specific uh, ethnic right. ethnicity. And, and, and it was a, a way to animalize, brutalize. Uh, the other, and and that's every time we do someone, even if we do it out of frustration or anger and all of that, uh, we just diminish the, the we make the pers- other person less human, mm-hmm. right? And and just by doing that, of course, we are um, uh, breaking down the, the the relationship and the communication with the other person. So if if we want to embrace a sort of uh, uh, conflict resolution culture, especially when we are in a dialogue. With someone else, one of the things we should learn to do is becoming aware if we do any form of name calling, and second is try to refrain from from uh. doing any name calling. If we want to, you know, a negotiation or a mediation process or a difficult situation, try to move it for a, to a more constructive pattern. You bet. You you use a, um, a, a kind of a highbrow, it seems like, way of 
putting somebody down, if you're not going to name call them, is just kind of analyzing them. And you mentioned that. Yeah. You know, so, we, oh, you know, you're just controlling. You, because of your parents, you need to have more control or whatever. And it's almost like we're psychoanalyzing people. And the minute you're doing that, you're obviously in a judging role. Yeah, absolutely. And so we act like doctors who uh, who prescribe something or, or who know uh, a diagnosis, right? What, what, what is causing some pain and harm, and we just impose that diagnosis on another person or a situation. Uh, and when we do this, uh, again, it doesn't matter how right or wrong we are, right? Especially it doesn't matter how right we are. Right. If we do that, we... Uh, just not let the other person uh, to express his or her own evaluation and own reading of a situation. And, and you know, we, we should not only see it as an advantage to the other every time we uh, create an alternative kind of behavior that might facilitate communication. We should see it also, if you want, in a more egoistic way, also to advantage to ourselves, because every time someone else can express himself or herself, we learn more. We gain insights. We learn more about the situation. We learn more about a person. And that can only increase the quality of our response, the quality mm-hmm. of our communication. So we should see it also to our own advantage and to the advantage of a, of a situation if we learn to become better communication. Not just, it's not good only for the other if, right. uh, with whom we are you know, struggling. It's also very good for us. It gives us very valuable insights to which we can then react more positively, react and, and you know, ameliorate the entire situation. Was this? I guess that was the goal of your article in Psychology Today was just to help us get to self-awareness. We just need to become more aware of the space that we are creating with people, and, and try to make that space as kind of neutral as we can. Absolutely. And, and, and not neutral in the sense that we are, you know, uh, distant yeah, or, or right, not cold, fair, right. right? Yeah, exactly. But, but actually, I, I would say being partisan in, in, in helping a situation to turn it around, right? We, we should actually see always, every time we are in a conflict, I, I always do an exercise and I'm always fascinated. It doesn't matter where I do it, you know, if I do it here in the United States or in Latin America, Middle East, it doesn't matter. But if when, the first exercise that I do a lot of time in my workshops is to ask people what kind of emotions or words or experiences they associate with the world conflict. Hmm. And 98% of those words are negative, right? Are linked to anxiety, are linked to fear, uh, are, are linked to, to frustration. So we, we, we are wired. I think our mind and our brain is wired to whenever we have conflict to, uh, uh, to see it in a very negative way. And, and, and in fact, you know, probably conflict avoidance is one of the most practiced strategies yeah. uh, we use to, to deal with conflict, only that it's not a way to deal with it, right? So if we, if we become more aware of how we go around in moments of conflict, then we are also helped to see conflict not as a, necessarily as a negative, but actually as a moment of opportunity, yeah. We, we, it, you know, it, it's one thing if we ask ourselves, what's the problem here that might uh, shift us to more a negative thing, the negative side, seeing the cost, the efforts. It's another thing if before a conflict or a crisis, we ask ourselves, you know, what's the opportunity here? Mm-hmm. What is it that I can learn? What, what's great about this, you know, incredible difficult situation? And that just helps us looking at situation that uh, in a different way, seeing things that we might not 
thing at first, right? Just because we are wired in a difficult, in a different way. I always like, uh, you know, to add a question whenever I do uh, workshops on very complex uh, and seemingly intractable conflict. Uh, people are very used to tell you um, what is it that causes the problem, right? What, what, right. what are the uh, root causes and, and and the complaints, the frustration go on. And when and then I show a different kinds of question and I say, okay, but why isn't the situation even worse, right? Ah. No matter how, how how difficult it is, it, it could be even more difficult. It could you know it could be absolutely a disaster, right? Why isn't that even worse than it is already? Yeah. And and people are always. Uh, frozen a little bit by my question because we are just not used. We are not uh-huh. used to see also the positive of our situation, to see the opportunities, to see what is actually working, that is helping. Uh, how, how do we are very creative sometimes in dealing uh, positively and constructively with a, with a difficult situation. I... So becoming aware of that, I think it is extremely important. It's, well. I think you're right on. And it's that idea of just simply feeling... Um, understanding the emotion of the space and knowing how to calm and, and manage the space a little bit better, probably being more aware of it as well. And also, what if we could just take your advice, Dr. Chivico, and all of a sudden start figuring out what we do appreciate, where we are together, and shore some of uh, that up in the conversation as well. Every conversation doesn't need to be a knockdown drag out. It could simply be where we bring each other together and talk also where we are together. And if we could support that, that'd be powerful. Well, uh, everybody, go check out his article, Dr. Chivico's article, and go to his website, aldocivico.com, A-L-D-O-C-I-V-I-C-O.com, for more information from the good doctor. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to go visit the guys from BYU Sports Nation, up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, have we got a great opportunity now. We want to go down to Studio B, where BYU Sports Nation is camped out. Spencer, Linton, Jerem, Jordan. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matt. What is up? The Matt Townsend effect continues. I know. (laughs) By the way, in two ways. Uh, But before we get to that story, I just want want you to answer me this. Uh, we did a, we, you know, she, it seems like because it's getting warmer, it's time to shear the sheep. <laughs> it seems like now's the time to get clippers out. Yes. There they are. <laughs> there they are. Oh, that sound is horrible. <laughs> I am so glad that I didn't say I would cut my hair. Spencer, come here, man. So so maybe maybe just teach us what's going on, Spencer. Well, once upon a time, Jerem Jordan... In a world. <laughs> Far, said away. he would shave his head <laughs> oh, if BYU won in Spokane against Gonzaga. And he did it on live national television and national <laughs> I radio. didn't realize we were on, I guess. I'm just kidding. No, I, d- I didn't think BYU would win the game. I really didn't. And then they pulled off the impossible. I was at the game. Uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Was it BYU amazing? BYU won that game, and it's going to be super worth it. Is it? If, 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 karma, if karma required... That I shave my head for them to win, I will take it. See, you know what? Let me just tell you, Jerem, uh, it didn't require it because there's this Mount Townsend effect. Yeah, that makes it so we didn't need karma 
nor your hair. Well, hot dang. The BYU Sports Nation karma, coupled with the Matt Townsend effect, coupled with the Sports Illustrated jinx that uh, put Gonzaga on the car, yeah. it was just too much to overcome. Was this, the, this is the biggest win in, what, 20, 30 years? More than that. 34 years. Oh, man. You always probably have more uh, notable yeah. wins. Uh, in terms of beating a team ranked that high, yes. In the regular season, yeah. And they yeah. needed that win to yeah. probably get into the NCAA tournament. So it was huge. Now a lot of people have BYU in, uh, which is great. So they go into Vegas on a six-game win streak. They've won eight of nine. They're riding high, feeling great, feeling like they could win the tournament. So all is well. Man, you realize Provo. since we started doing this this crosstalk, yeah. BYU has yet to lose a West mm-hmm. Coast Conference basketball game, right? Yeah, you know, it's really? the it's the karma effect wow. combo. I'm just saying. I mean, I don't want to brag, but I I, I do this everywhere I go. <laughs> it's everywhere. Everywhere you go. <laughs> everywhere I go, somebody's getting cheered. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. We're, we're <laughs> There's the sound again. Shaving Jerem's head so today. On your I show. I've, ever, I've never been nervous on the show till today. <laughs> How short are we going? Are we going are we going all the way down? We're we're gonna buzz uh, <sighs> yeah, we're gonna buzz it with the you know, no clip on. I think I saw you, you know vlogging I mean? earlier, Jerem. Is it were you just looking at your hair? What were you doing? I saw you uh, walking down a- the stairs. <laughs> But yeah, I sent a vine out of the long, lonely walk for the last time <laughs> with my full head of hair. The funny thing is, if it was, if I was just on BYU Sports Nation every day, whatever, this yeah. audience understands. No. Yeah, that. right. I'm doing volleyball matches. We're going to be in Vegas yeah. doing, doing neutral games. Plus, with you have Santa a life. Clara I mean, you've Pepperdine, got neighbors. They're going to be like, who is this clown with the shaved head? He's going to look great, Matt. It's, he's going to look fantastic. Oh, I, I? You know what? I might have to come down for this one. Come hang out. Come, <laughs> hey, you can come get a strip if you want. <laughs> what would I do with that? <laughs> I mean, shave. Locks, locks of love. a strip. Oh, yeah. Darren's oh. locks of love. Hit the BYU Sports Nation deck. These this are going to so go into cool. the student-athlete building uh, Legacy Hall. <laughs> with so, Tyler Hawes' jersey from the Portland game where he set the record. Your entire show's on this, then. Well, it... I mean, what else is there to talk it, about? We'd be lying if we said it wasn't a big part of it. Yeah. This is great. You know what? I, I can't even beat that. Hey, by the way, we do need to clarify, though. Jerem, did you steal that? Uh, we were talking when you were gone last week that you may have stolen a, a NASCAR uh, sprint, actually a sprint car race car of the sprint. Did you hear about this? Apparently he no, didn't. Do- no. Oh, he's playing it. He's uh, playing it well, Matt. Yeah. I don't know. I have no I idea what you're talking about. about. You know, I've never would, heard of this. You know, I would own it. You would own it, actually. Well, you're not going to own hair, so this will be fun. Exactly right. Well, guys, we wish you the best on your show. Have a great show. I'll have Thank to you. come down and just watch this. Can yeah, I- it, this this is going to oh. be amazing. Every time that's turned on, I get like I jump. Ah! <laughs> It sounds like a taser. You're so, jumping. Sounds no, like the dude. last time I was tased. <laughs> oh, so good. Everyone's been tased. It's awesome. You know what, Jeremy? It's going to feel like you were tased in a good way. <sighs> Don't be nervous. Breathe through your nose. Okay. There you go. Yeah, I'm good. I'm ah! There you go. Good luck, gentlemen. Thank you. Ha- have Thanks, a great man. show and a great cheering. We will do that. Uh, we will. Uh, we, we have to check in on that. Uh, let's send somebody down. Let's get some pictures. That needs to go out on our page right there. Oh, would I? I would never say that. I would never make a deal where somebody would shave my head. Would you do that, James? Probably, actually. You would. Yeah. Well, especially for like such a a monumental thing that I didn't think would ever happen. Yeah, I'd, I'd feel pretty confident in that. No, but it's still a game, you know, and anybody could still win a game. That's true. 
I mean, like I would, I get it if you said if you know, you know, if you ran, if you won for president of the United States. Well, you know, it, it's a game, Matt. It's, it's. I just won the presidency. I'm going to shave my head. <laughs> yeah, but I would do it for that. Yeah, if, you know, but not a game. I'm telling you, a lot can go wrong. Yeah, but I mean that that was a huge win. I mean, Gonzaga was, was raked to number three. Yeah, you know, and BYU didn't really even stand a chance. It seemed no. And who'd have thunk? Boom. Bada boom, bada bing. Again, it is the Matt Townsend effect. I think we're having – I mean, again, we never thought you'd be getting married. I know. Not to be rude. Nobody did. Yeah. Because I think when you and I started, you were in a completely different relationship. Yeah. I mean, ish. I don't know if you could consider it a relationship. Well, I mean, you were dating, and there well, is, there is so. the restraining order now, so yeah, there was yeah. something there. Well, there was a there was a trial. Yeah, so it was, it was an interesting relationship. Hmm. Well, the Matt Townsend effect. Not only we're we getting people married, we're getting people games won. We're getting haircuts for people. Powerful. Let's go to our sports guy, Terry. Is it weird to be on a show where it's not always sports? See, I like it. It's, it's, is it? You like it because you think more. Yes. Well, no, no not that you think more. It's you just, think differently. It's a different topic. You're not looking at the same sort of things. It w- right now, it would be basketball, basketball, basketball. Yeah. And then there's the lull. Then you get to baseball, baseball, baseball. Not as D- Depending on where you are. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I mean, yeah. Yeah. sports isn't as powerful as this show. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> kind of pumping yourself up a little bit? I don't know what I'm doing. You talked earlier yeah. about teaching kind of money management yeah. type things. Teaching Your son wanted a, uh, a job of some kind. Yeah, he wanted and you're, a job. You're like, all right, what, minimum wage yeah, for I payment? Said, you're said, trying to figure that he out? He wanted uh, nine to ten bucks an hour, and I'm thinking – I was thinking six. Then I said I may as well pay a minimum. And then he looked at me like, I could make that anywhere. <laughs> Would that have been his first job? Pretty much, yeah. Other wow. than the jobs, yeah, that we've provided at home. Yeah. Starting out at 9 to $10, that's, yeah. that's pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. He's just naive that way. 15-year-old girl in New York mm-hmm. has set up her own babysitting company. Okay. Well, a lot of girls are babysitting. Her name's uh, Noah Mintz. Yeah. Uh, she started up this company that in the first couple years generated a conservative estimate uh-huh. of $375,000. What? She, uh, CNN Money notes that she's an eighth grader. Uh, she devoted 40 hours a week to her company. And so in July, she hired a CEO to deal with the hundreds of emails that she has to deal with. You know day. what? Oh, she's she's laundering money. The CEO is 26 years old and says it's kind of weird taking orders from at the time a 14-year-old. Now she's 15. So she's got this 15-year-old telling her what to do. <laughs> she has a you know, business degree, college and you're running this company, but the 15-year-old's the boss, and she says, like, in between breaks and study hall and stuff, she's texting her stuff on how, what, you know, what decisions to make as they're, they're trying to run crazy. the business. Uh, the business is uh, she matches up families with babysitters and full-time nannies. It was hatched when, as a sixth grader, Noah realized she was always unhappy with her own caregiver and figured there had to be a better way. Are you so they they tap into universities, yeah, and and different uh, organizations around the town, and they use her 
website, I guess, is a clearinghouse to to come in and they vet the the, the candidates and they they go through the process so the the people can come to that website and have this. She's a dealer. selection of nannies and babysitters. She's a nanny dealer, and she's fifteen with a twenty six year old CEO, so she can can you know finish junior high, high school, that type of age. And she, my kid wants minimum wage. Right. She was a very aware sixth grader. Yes. I mean, what were you doing when you were a sixth grader? G.I. Joe. Playing in the mud in the back backyard? I was probably. playing baloney toss. Have you guys ever played that? No. You get sliced. I was, I was told not to play with my food. You get sliced baloney, and you throw it up on the ceiling, and it sticks. And then you have to wait until it releases, and then you have to catch it on your face. And then you have to eat it without using your hands. Baloney toss. Okay. Sixth grade. Sixth grade. That's what I was doing. I'm sure your mother loved that. Well, she didn't even know I did that until we were moving her out about 12 years later. Twelve, Actually, tw- yeah, 12, 14 years later. And there was these rings of grease with uh, like fur on them <laughs> on the ceiling. She's like, what's this all about? I'm like, I think, I think Mary used to throw baloney up there. I blamed it on my sister. So, yes, a babysitting company. Talk to your son about that. Make his own company. Oh, boy. Go out there on his own and try to make this thing work. I'd have the IRS at my door. Is your son importing things from uh, Mexico? What? Through your brother, through your other son? Yes, we have an import business You're now. like, no, it's an LLC, I swear. And then you're questioning what that was even about. But yeah, it's so not good. She, she was working 40 hours a day to try to keep this company going. She's got a, a CEO that's 26 years old, and she's trying to be a freshman, sophomore, and... Well, you know what? More power to her. Absolutely. More power to her. By the way, my wife just updated me. My son gets $20 for mowing the lawn. 20 bucks? Yeah. Wow. That's a big lawn. I got dinner. I got a whooping. (laughs) And I was happy. What I had to learn was my father didn't like to come to me and say, do this. Yeah. He He liked to ask me. So... After a while, I started really analyzing what he was saying. Yeah. And he goes, would you like to mow the lawn? And honestly, no, I Not really, Dad. And then he's out mowing the lawn, and my mom comes to me and explains that he doesn't want to command me and tell me what to do all the time. And I go, so why does he ask my opinion? See, that's on... And so then I just had to read the code and do it. That's helping. Yeah. Dad just wants you to learn the code. Yeah. Well, that was a good show, folks. Uh, did you see everything? I mean, hopefully... If you missed an hour, you got to go back. We had Operation Rescue, uh, Operation Underground Railroad. Go to their website, ourrescue.org. They're trying to save kids from being basically abducted, sold into slavery, and becoming sex slaves. Really changed uh, my view on pornography, one of the root drivers of that. Go check out the website, OurRescue.org. Again, we'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good life. Until tomorrow, take care.